welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with our latest guests and announcements, be sure to follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit the support section on the Anchor website, where you can contribute to the podcast once or by setting up recurring donations. Today's guest is Russ Devist, former Associate Principal Trumpet of the Montreal Symphony and current Head of Brass at my alma mater, McGill University. Russ was my undergraduate teacher. He was also my first teacher of such a caliber. Before him, I had never really spent any extended period of time sitting next to someone who could make the trumpet sound that way. The reality is that no matter how many hours I had spent listening to recordings, nothing can prepare you for hearing the real deal next to you. Marco Blau once told me that sound memory is in our bones, and that if one spends enough time playing with someone, their sound is forever imprinted in our skeletons. While it has been many years since I have had the pleasure of sitting next to Russ, his sound lives very much in me, an always elusive target. His sound was also a true reflection of his personality for me. Russ was always unafraid, and taught me the value of having an opinion on and off the stage. During my interview with Dave Taylor, he said he always told his students to remember, safety last. Russ embodies this to me in both his playing and his personality. While this has gained him many faint-hearted critics, nobody could ever accuse him of being boring, and much to his critics' mortification, instrument manufacturers have yet to engineer a personality for anyone with a good credit score. Russ was also a friend to me and a fierce defender, he went to bat for me more times than I deserved and protected me in the minefield of growing up as I developed my own not entirely muted personality. Some might think me unwise to admit that since I met him, Russ became an important role model. These people would be mistaken. I am grateful to have a person in my musical life who has taught me the value of integrity, the love for music instead of careerism, the value of sharpening one's bullshit radar, and that, in life, we must all choose our own regrets. A passionate life is one worth living, while a bland existence is a waste of every day and every breath. For all this and many more things, I will be forever grateful to Russ. So I hope you enjoy this conversation of one of my favorite people, Russ Devist. recording that's good oh so i have to behave Nah, you never behave russ it's fine <laughs> yeah i so you and i go way 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 back because you know jesus when was that 2009 uh wow. yeah and we i i think it was the perfect thing for me to have you as a teacher because as i discovered later i mean i don't you, i've never told you this but when i started becoming closer to Tom Stevens and getting to know him and everything he taught and he was big on things that were very reminiscent of what my lessons were with you as far as um, you know I, I always got along with you so that was fine because I, I do well in situations like I don't do well with mentors that tell me that everything's peachy that I'd never done well with that and you're not that and what I discovered with with in my time with Tom was that you, he, everything he taught you were part of that lineage as well. And it'd be, it was very, I came to understand later, later that what you do is very tied to what 
probably Vincent Vacchiano would do in lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems frustrating at the time, but it really prepares you to become kind of a more interesting person. Because one of the things, for example, that I, looking back, you did a lot and, and it's funny, it was you would assign way more work than was possible. Uh, you know, like eight etudes, eight major etudes, plus the whole Arben book. Uh, and, and in a way, and then we would show up to lessons and you wouldn't even want to hear them. It would just be, you would play this thing you had worked really hard on four bars of, and you'd be like, great. All right. Now side read this one. Um, well, I wasn't always like that. I mean, that's what Vakiano used to do. I did a little of that, but I didn't give you, I mean, the whole, what do you mean the whole Arbin book? <laughs> well, condensed, we, if you were to condense the things that I gave you in the Arbin book, it would come out to three pages. Uh, was, three and a half. Okay. It was more than that, but I understand now, actually, the, the way that you went through it, which is uh, one part of the book per, you know, every day you do one part of the book, but that's what I meant by the whole Arbin book. Uh, it's brilliant, but, you know, well, that's, that's the way I do it, and it works. So it works really well. But also, I think that you, um, that kind of tenacity of having to overwork, but also, mm-hmm. it was hard to get for to get a compliment from you was difficult, and that was probably a good thing. And you well, mentioned that that kind of te- but that kind of teaching has gotten you in trouble because people are not into that anymore, uh, which is a shame. But Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, like where that, where that, well, where, where do you come from with all this stuff and what's your, what's your goal? And well, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I was studying, I was in uh, high school and I took lessons. Um, I was taking lessons with the local teacher, Joseph Jalloway. Actually, I started with my father, my father played trumpet. And um, um, he used to drive me crazy because I would be practicing and he would be cutting the grass like about 800 feet away. And I'd be practicing something, and I play a wrong note, and the and the lawn the lawnmower would stop, and I went, oh, what the hell's going on? And the door would open, and he'd walk in the room, and he'd turn the page back, and he'd go, that's an F sharp instead of an F natural. It's like you know, <laughs> he was always listening. He had great ears, fantastic ears. What a what a great great um, player. So I um I uh, studied with the local guy um, Joe Jalloway, and then who's a fantastic high school teacher, and then I went to study with Nato Nato Pandalfi. And uh, that's when I was, I don't know, 16, 17, something like that. And um, I mean, he just, he's the one that took me through the Auburn book in in the proper way. Um, Starting with, you know, I could do lots of stuff at the time. I could do that, you know, Del Steger's uh, Carnival of Venice opening there that goes, I mean, I was doing that at 16. It was like, and uh, I said, well, I want to play this for you. And he said, no, I don't want to hear it. So, you know, because I wanted to impress him. And it wasn't the point. The point was he wanted to see if I could play a quarter note and a half note properly with a good articulation, and I couldn't. And it just like, what the hell is going on here? And it's like, oh, wow. So it was a matter of really focusing in on um, listening to yourself and and um, and uh, correcting uh, nuances in your playing, so that you get the basics. And that's what it all amounts to. That's where the Arvin book comes from. It's just getting basics which a lot of people don't have. And, and I'm surprised that a lot of people don't, have not gone through the Arbor book. Very few people have gone through the Arbor book properly. And properly is the way that I've been, you know, shown through it. You don't have to go through every page, but every section. And, uh, you know, I actually wrote out a whole list of, uh, of um, uh, 
I should publish this thing of how to go through the Auburn book properly. And um, I did actually. It's on a video. Uh, Miguel Schulich School of Music made a video of me doing this thing. I think I, I'm not sure if I posted it. No, I didn't post it yet. They were supposed to post it. So, and I, and I go through the whole thing just the way I gave it to you guys. And that really set me straight as far as how to play properly. So when I started playing Haydn and Hummel and and uh, the Hindemith and, and things like that, everything was was pretty straight ahead, and and uh, I didn't have any problems with it because I was playing correctly. My r rhythm was correct, the tone was good, um, and the intonation was good. You know, everything was like pretty well locked in. I just I just didn't have experience, but I had a good foundation from that, you know, and that's where it comes from. You get a good foundation, you can build upon that. So when I do that with kids, a lot of people, I mean, I remember one student saying that he didn't want to do the Arvin book because it was too tough, you know, and I don't know. I mean, you can start a begin, get a beginner, uh, 10, 10 years old on the Arvin book, you know, and the stuff that you can do that's from uh, the elementary uh, level. But... Um, yeah, some people just couldn't take it, and then very few can, I guess. I don't know why. But um, he was very tough, and he kicked me out of the house one time because I, I missed, like, two days of practicing in the week. And I was diligent. I used to practice, you know, in high school, I used to practice two hours a day, which is pretty good for high school, you know. And I would really make sure that I had the whole thing down, almost memorized. And when I clipped a note or missed a note or played a wrong note, that's it. He says, yeah, you know, and he was always one thing. I mean, years later, he told me, he said, I was wondering about you. And he had this little high voice. You know, I was wondering about you. I was wondering if you practiced. I said, no, I was practicing. You kicked me out of the house. I practiced. I missed two days. That's all I did, you know. But, you know, <laughs> I never did that again. But um, it was, um, he was tough like that. And, and he forced you to listen and how to teach yourself. So while you're playing, you make a mistake, you can hear it. And he taught you how to hear it. And he, he would just sit there and, and just make little sounds. If you made a mistake, you'd just go, you'd have to stop because you did something wrong, which means you didn't hear it. If you made a mistake and you didn't stop, he would say something. If you made a mistake and you stopped, then he, he said, well, would you stop? And I, I would tell him. So that he was always reinforced. He's a great teacher. He's a fantastic teacher. Um, and his son, Jimmy, I don't know if you know Jim Prandolf, he, he plays in the, well, he used to play in the Met. He, he quit the Met several years ago now because of his uh, eye problem. He had macular degeneration. But Jimmy was uh, probably five years, six years younger than me, and he used to sit on top of the steps listening to my lessons. So when he got the Met job, I said, yeah, you got that job because of me because you listened to my lesson. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I was forced to do that. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, that carries through and it worked. And, 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 and so when I hear people play, I hear basic problems and I bring them back to basics. And I, you know, I, I think I kicked out two people when I was teaching at McGill a long time ago and I got a note from the dean. It's like, what are you doing? Kicking these people out, you know? And I said, well, they, you know, they just came in and they're not practicing. It's like, they're not doing anything. What am I supposed to do, you know? Well, you, you know, you, you can't do that, this and that, that. So I had to be nicer and, you know, try to, do things a little bit nicer. So now, now I do, but it's it's like it's still demanding. But it's but it's um it's not like somebody's studying with you privately. Like at, at a school situation is a little bit different. So I mean, there's a way you can be tough as well. But to, yeah, yeah, you have to be complimentary, and, and there's a there's a balance between being tough and complimentary. I, I don't think I was that bad on you, was I? No. I uh my first <laughs> you kicked me out my first year, but it was again one of the I first. 
just no. one of the first lessons we had i didn't get what i needed to get done and you kicked me out but it was a great lesson it was like i like you said i never did it again that i can remember and then the other the other thing i had one of my most productive years with you was a year that my lessons were scheduled after a particular person that was so sensitive that you by the end had all this bottled up shit and those that year of lessons was so brutal but i it was i don't think i progressed more than in that year and to the point that i, I remember at the end of the year you told me hey man i'm so sorry like this year was uh, a lot but it was because there was a person right before that would like essentially cry every lesson with you and you had to be like extra nice and you would take it out on me <laughs> I'll have to go back in my records to find out who that was. I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a frustrating thing. It's like, it's like, you know, I think we all cried, you know, like I, you know, I used to have an extra trumpet to throw against the wall. Not really, but you know, <laughs> you know, because you get so frustrated with the thing sometimes. And it's, um, uh, there's, I mean, there's, there's been times in my life, even in professional times, there were three times that, that were, you know, I hit the bottom. And um, so, you know, it's just a matter of keeping your head straight and, and building yourself back up again. But yeah, it can be frustrating. And um, sometimes it's very challenging to, to find out, like, uh, if people are crying, that means they're actually concerned. So that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, if they didn't cry or didn't care, then that's, you know, well, so much you can do there. But now, uh, where that's obviously then the technical side of your playing, which is spectacular or always was what is the where did the other part of it that i think is so special for you and i'm so glad i had you as a teacher instead of maybe somebody some of the people that are lauded right now uh is that you had a legitimately kind of or a legitimate love for the repertoire you were very concerned with making music more than anything i mean i remember you when you taught excerpts to us, for example, it was never about that technical side of it at that point. I mean, it was more about not being an idiot in your context in the orchestra, that, that you had to see yourself as a part of, a, of not a whole in the orchestra, not just that, but also your responsibility towards certain composers, because that's what your you know, job is. Yeah, well, I can see the can of worms opening right now, that's for sure. Um, the <laughs> I'll try to keep the lid on as far as I go. The, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> you can't play Mozart the same way you play uh, Mahler, you know, just because they start with M. On the other hand, maybe, you know, some soft, no, no, it doesn't matter. Even the soft sections of Mahler are different than Mozart. Um, so you have to use different articulation and, 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 and it's, it's, you know, this all goes back to Jacobs too. It's like, what, what kind of sound do you want to have in your head? What kind of thing do you want to project? What kind of image is in your mind? So when you're playing Mahler and you hear this, like, um, this little soft, was it, um, you know, that, um, that section or even in Mahler five, um, you're with the viola anyway, but uh, but still, you, you it never really it's not really a solo. It's you're with the viola. Now the 
I, you can't hear the viola, they should follow you. But on the other hand, you should be sensitive to that fact. And I, I remember one time there was a little bit of a question as to how fast we should do that grace note. And, and I always thought of doing it slower because if you do grace notes too fast in a symphony orchestra, you're not going to hear it. The audience is not going to hear it. It's going to sound like a mistake. It's going to sound like... So if you take it a little bit slower because you're speaking with a larger audience, then you slow things down just a little bit. And the viola player was a little upset because I wasn't playing it fast enough. And this is with Zubin in the Israel Philharmonic. And... Um, Zubin liked the way I play, which is good enough for me, I guess. And, and he um, and he said to the viola player, well, just follow the, the trumpet player. That's all, you know, because, you know, I didn't know. I said, look, I could do it faster. But, you know, anyway, we had a little discussion. Everything was fine. It worked out. But so I, I think of the thing as uh, – when people play orchestral music, I, I heard principal players – Somebody sent a link to me of a principal player in an orchestra, and, a, and let's say it's a major orchestra, one of the top 25 orchestras, okay? Maybe even top 30. A principal player in one of these orchestras, fabulous player, but I hear him, I hear, I hear him play this, um, I don't know if it was Bruckner or something else, and, and, he, and this guy says, what do you think of this? And I said, I said uh, it's just, there's nothing. It's just like playing an exercise. Like, uh, you know, and, and what I mean by exercise, I don't mean the Arben book, because those are tunes. I mean, like, a, you know, like, you know, some, some drill, the way they're doing it. Everything is correct. The rhythm is correct. The sound is correct. The intonation is correct. It's, you know, everything is really good, but it has no, no substance. There's no inflections. There's no uh, uh, phrasing. But, so I said, this doesn't make any sense. How can this guy be a principal player when he's playing like this? So I, I went back and I did some research and listened to this guy play, playing solos. He's fantastic. He's a fantastic player. But when it came to orchestral music, how come all of a sudden that solo uh, style didn't enter the, 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 the orchestral side of it? You know what I mean? So what the heck's that all about? Well, I, I think that there's a thing, I totally know what you mean. And it's, it's something that, you know, I, I've, been taking auditions the past two years but to be honest like uh, it's never been for me that uh that that's the one path to having a musical life i mean oh, absolutely not yeah and so but what i have realized in in taking those auditions is that there is no reward in this game if we're going to consider this a game there's no reward system for playing outside a very limited box that it's almost like the the strength of this idea and and it, it has been proven it's like there's a strength to the idea of doing everything in the box and so by the time you get to the finals you've eliminated probably 90 percent of your most talented musician pool and that's the problem with auditions yeah yeah, and so you're encouraging a type of behavior that is is fine. I mean, of course, like you said, there's nothing offensive about it, but you're probably cutting uh, the people that are risk taking in the early rounds because you in the early rounds you're cutting everyone. Uh, well, hardest, well, I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 go. No, the hardest thing in an audition is to get past the preliminaries. Mm -hmm. You know, because um, you have to do everything just right. So what, what does that mean? Um, that's, that doesn't mean to me that you play within the box. You, you, have, to, you have to basically not offend anybody, okay? Um, you're going to have, let's see, 
okay, it's 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 not always going to be a, a first job. It's going to be like an associate position, second trumpet, whatever, fourth. Um, with Montreal, it was like if we hired somebody who was fourth, that means they're going to play first, but sometimes they might play, uh, I mean, they're going to play second, but sometimes they might play first. You never know, you know, kind of switched around a bit. Um, I'll try to be, I'll try to be more concise here that, you know, you're listening, you have, you have like a bassoon player who's, who's used to hearing trumpet players blast in their ears. So they're not going to hear, they're not going to pick someone that plays loud. Okay. And, you know, there's a big thing right now about auditions, whether we should have a screen up or not because of the New York Times article with Thomasini and all that kind of nonsense. Well, you know, the whole thing with screens is, is, is to get rid of a prejudice to begin with. And it, I think it started, well, somebody mentioned that it started with, uh, I don't know if it started with, with women because women are not getting jobs in the orchestra. So they put, they put it up. I think it even started before that. Uh, it started before that, but I think the big uh, game changer was the Abby Conant lawsuit in Hamburg and then, well, yeah. that, or in Munich, sorry. And then that, uh, that kind of made everything fall in, into place. And that article, I've, I'm very against what it's saying in a way, because even though I don't necessarily think that the audition process is perfect, it's kind of the best we have. And the one thing they don't mention in that article is since that happened, I think the composition of most orchestras is 50 to 60 percent women. And the one that they keep conveniently out is the minority in America of Asian community is not counted as a minority, even though they're overwhelmingly winning a lot of positions in the United States, particularly in string sections. And so if, if anything, that's like a super big equalizer uh, that we shouldn't get rid of. Now, there's problems with the system for other reasons, whether you're getting the best news or the most interesting musicians, even though you're definitely getting the best, uh, some of the best players. But to go back to what you said earlier, yeah. that a lot of the best players are eliminated. Mm -hmm at the beginning and then you know and then you keep a screen up all the way through you listen to you know the met does this and other people do this okay but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to pick the best players it's in the met they have to pick somebody that doesn't mean they're the best players i'm not, I'm not, I'm not ragging on anybody here but the point is that um, yeah maybe because i took the met job and i didn't get it so i'm pissed off but anyway it's okay <laughs> no i'm not um <laughs> but um, you know, it, it depends how you, you, you play that first round and, and everyone's nervous on the first round. <clears throat> and, you know, I always mention this story <clears throat> in, in Montreal, we're having an audition for, um, there was a local audition and it was for the fourth position. So we start with uh, Canadians. And then if you don't pick anybody nationally, you go international. And so we're listening to people and then this guy comes in and plays and, you know, you know, people are nervous and the screen is up. We don't see anybody. We're back there eating our donuts and coffee stuff like that so that's what the screen's for to hide us actually and uh <laughs> to hide the committee <laughs> so this guy starts playing and it sounds like he's just you know trying to stay in that box that you mentioned and 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 not doing anything too offensive but it's like it's like constipated okay it sounds like constipated playing and it's like oh man this guy and sure enough i'm just waiting you know when i hear that that's when i grab my donut so i'm just waiting for the big clamp to happen and sure enough Ba boom! This huge clam, hey! and everybody in the committee starts writing down the little notes and stuff. And I went, okay, finally, she's so so. There's three more excerpts, and this guy just plays the hell out of those three excerpts. I don't know what they were. I think it was on on and maybe Petrushka or pictures. I don't know what it was. 
just knocked the hell out of it. The first three were terrible. The first two were terrible. The last three were fantastic. And I went, hey, man, this, this, is, this is what I want to hear. So when it came to voting, I was the only one that voted yes. And it's, oh, come on, didn't you hear the way he played? I said, yeah, I did. It really sucked. But did you listen to the last three excerpts? And everybody shut up because they didn't listen to the last three excerpts. The committee gave up listening. And that's the problem. The other problem is that if you don't do everything right all the time, then you're going to get eliminated. But if you screw up with the first two, you're eliminated. But if somebody's listening, like me, and, and concerned, like me, sorry, I don't mean to blow my own horn, but the point is that this guy wound up playing, and he came in, basically, we didn't hire him, but he came in uh, the final person. And we used him, he was the best person in town. The best player in town. Now he has a principal job at an orchestra. And we were, the, the committee was ready to uh, get rid of this guy because the committee's fault. Because they didn't want to listen all the way through. And that's the problem with committees, is that they just give up and that's all there is to it. It's, a, you know, so it's, I, I said it once before, whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the player or is it the fault of the committee? And, and it's usually both. Because if you don't play really well and you make the committee, committee like forced to listen to you, you know, it's a tiring thing listening to auditions. So it's, it's a 50-50 thing. So you have, to, you have to put it out, but not be offensive. And you have to play within that box, but show that you have some flexibility and in playing a, a particular excerpt. That's going to be the number word, the word here, is convincing that this is the way it goes. It can be completely different than any other recording as long as it's convincing. It's like, wow. That's, I never heard it like that before. That's, yeah. But then you have somebody who says, well, I don't think they're going to fit in this action. You know, the, the nonsense like that. Well, you know, if the guy is a good player, the girl's a good player, and they, and they can bend with different styles, then you know they're flexible. And that's what the whole point of an audition is, to see if somebody is flexible enough to do that. But you don't just eliminate somebody because they miss a note or because they're playing a, a little screwed up rhythm or whatever. You know, it's, eh. you know sure, you, you, there's a basics that you have to listen to, and that's what makes it very difficult. And when you're listening, I mean, I can only listen to 10 people at one shot. I need to take a break after that. I think now I'm down to seven. After that, I, I stopped listening. I can't take it anymore. I have to just take a break. You know, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, but I mean, that system is interesting because it, it also speaks to something that's changed a lot in the last 30 to 40 years, which is that uh, the, the amount of people trained and, and wanting to be in orchestras is so huge that, I, I mean, I mean, you get a fourth trumpet audition in Thunder Bay and you have 150 people show up. I mean, what, what the hell's going on there? And so it, it also, it, it puts oh, an... That's what's going on over there. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, it, it, puts, it puts a crazy uh, responsibility on a jury that, like you said, I mean, how the hell are you going to listen to 150 people and actually be objective? It's just not not real um but but then the other part of it, it what you said is i think it sometimes makes very interesting players like the person you're talking about who went on to have major major jobs uh it makes people like that um you know sound constipated like you said which to me is like the physical response of somebody who wants to take risks and is not allowed. And so the people that could be pretty legendary 
sort of screw themselves out of it because of all the information they've heard about how to control themselves in those situations. Right. Look, there's a, there's some great people that I know in New York. Um, fantastic. They can do everything. They can play everything. But when it comes to auditions, they just can't do it. And there's subs in the Met, there's subs in the Philharmonic, there's subs all over them. They do shows, the whole, the whole thing. But it's just, when it comes to an audition, it's a whole different mindset. So it takes a practice to take an audition and win an audition. Now, on the other hand, you have people that are professional audition takers and that can take auditions really well. Not that they're great players, but they can take an audition really well and pull it off and make it convincing because they're doing everything correctly. And that comes with another situation where, okay, they're doing good rhythm, good time, good, good sound, intonation's great. And, but, you know, where's, where's the, you know, as they say, where's the beef? Where's the emotion? Where is the, uh, uh, how do you weave in, in and out of the orchestra? You know, and, and, you know, you mentioned about, I guess, you know, people ask, when I played it once for all, I had a cellist that came up to me and says, you know, I can always tell you when you're playing, even though if I don't turn around, it's just because you, you have a way of blending into the, into the orchestra and going with the strings and going with the flutes and all that stuff like that. I didn't even know that. It's like, wow, I got a compliment from a string player. That's, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> even a viola player said that. So it's like, wow. <laughs> They hate us. <laughs> so it's like you're doing something right when you have string players say stuff like that. that you know, and that's the fun part of, of playing in an orchestra. To me, that was the fun part. It's like, it's like I never knew what I was going to be doing until something happened or what kind of I would react. And I mean, that's what we should do anyway, right? That you react to a situation and then you make it happen rather than just saying, this is what my teacher told me to do and therefore I'm going to play it this way and that's all there is to it. You know, fit the puzzle, uh, you know, piece of puzzle in there. If it doesn't fit, just keep pushing it. There it is. Got it. Doesn't match, but hey, I made it fit. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that, that it, that's been so fascinating. Uh, I've kind of, kind of like super, I, I, through the years, I've become very interested in your generation. So like Builder Sacks and all you guys that, that went through like that, latter era of Valkiano, so you know after right. stevens and all them um because you guys got to share stages with people where auditioning was not as hard you know what i mean like uh like that story is it Valkiano that won two jobs in one day and that sounds legendary but it's just at the time it was a different game and so you guys you guys had interactions with people that were in some ways had to figure it out on the job like Bud Herseth kind of invented what it was to be Bud Herseth. Nobody told him how to right. play in an orchestra. And Vacchiano so different because he was figuring out how to make it work and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, Mel Broyles, like Jesus. Oh, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but that, what interests me is that you guys had all that training but also got to sit next to these people. And I'm always curious if you find now that the guard is, has been changing for a couple of years that the people that are coming in the auditions, like you said, are, are landing you with people that are very proficient, but just not very interested in, in actually being in the orchestra. It's, I don't know. Well, that's because they know everything. <laughs> well, they think they do. Um, I had teachers say that, uh, and this has been going on for, for every generation is like, Teachers say, boy, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in the audition circuit now because, because the students, 
we're actually becoming just as good as the people playing in the orchestra. So as the orchestra gets better and as people like you say, Herseth, when Herseth got into the orchestra, of course he was a good player, but yeah, he learned as he was there. And the orchestra, if you listen to recordings back then, there was not that much accuracy going on. They were taught these things. And then, the, you know, Toscanini was like a teacher, basically. I mean, all the horror stories you hear about him, but he was still a teacher. Uh, and and he, he, he would teach people how to, how to play properly. And then that was passed on from generation to generation. So as things get, go on in generation, then this is passed down. So, so the students coming out of, uh, of school now are already at the level of where they should be. So that's why it kind of gets me when, when they come to a, uh, an orchestra job, they say, well, this, this person is not up to the level. Well, yeah, because now the level of a symphony orchestra has become really quite high, that a student to get into that level um, is, is, you know, you have to have a lot of stuff happening and, and have to have the musical maturity as well. But still, we, all the stuff that's been passed down from, you know, Vacchiano got it from what, Schlossberg and got it from, uh, who was the guy, Heim, Gustav Heim. And they, they, you know, and he passed that down to all these other people, to, to Schluter and to, to uh, Stevens, and then they pass it down to us, and we keep passing information down. Um, the, you know, the thing with Vacchiano, the old school, is that uh, he, he would throw, you know, you know the old stories I heard, all the interviews where he just throw transpositions at you constantly. Um, I had... Um, you know, I studied with Schluter too, Charlie Schluter, who, who studied with Vacchiano as well, you know, so there was another concept there, and Charlie had his own style as well, right. and I think a lot of the stuff that I got from Charlie, even though I played like him at one point, but I, but I got, a, I backed off from that, did my own style, but a lot of the things that Charlie said were basically based on phrasing of orchestral excerpts, and phrasing orchestral phrases, and, and I remember looking at him going, you can do that? Because I was always told that you must exactly what you're saying. You must play exactly perfect all the time. You have to be exactly in tune. Your rhythm has to be impeccable. Yeah, sure. If you, but if you're worried about playing in tune and, and keeping your rhythm impeccable all the time, you, what else, are you thinking about how, I mean, this, this violates everything that Jacobs has ever talked about. It's like, it's like, you know, getting the idea of what you want, where the music to go and then just play the music. And that's what Jacobs was talking about, right? Yeah, and also, I mean, with Vakia, it's interesting. Maybe, maybe you can tell me a bit, a little bit about this. I, I just made that connection because you were one of Schluter's students when, like, one of first generation from NEC, right? Because, because yeah, he, he was had, in the symphony for two years before he got there. Right, and and uh, this was something that Stevens always talked about, and Stevens and Schluter are from that same generation of right. students from Vacchiano that Vacchiano had kind of uh, uh, mellowed out by the time that that you and Ed and, and everyone else was taking lessons with him compared to what he had been back then. And that back then, what it's so cool you're saying that about Schluter because that's exactly what Tom said, that all that you were learning was the things that he had gotten from Magier who had been a viola, a a viola student at the Paris Conservatory. So he had phrasing classes, right. which brass players were not privy to. So uh, all, all this idea of, of finding a lot of solid, like solid energy and, and constant kind of power. Well, it's not power. It's like, 
what grounds people from like Stevens and Schluter and what you teach and all that is this idea that knowing how to play in three, four settles you. If you, if you know how to correctly phrase three, four, four, four and a waltz, it'll settle your technique because you're more concerned about is this coming off musically? And that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um. You said Vakian will mellow it out. I don't know if you, yeah, maybe he did, but um, I remember taking, I, I was in Boston in my undergrad years the last year and I had to, I quit school and I came back again and and I, my lessons were finished with the teachers that I, and I had studied with just about everybody in Boston. I studied mm-hmm. with the, in Boston Conservatory. I was studying with Gogan, who was the fourth player in the Boston Symphony. I, I took a lesson with uh, Andre Coleman, who was second, one lesson with Katala, uh, quite a few lessons with Voizan and some local guys as well. Um, and I said, you know, what the hell, I'm gonna, my last year, I'm gonna take lessons with Vakiano. So I traveled back and forth from Boston to New York and it was an eye opener for me. I, and, you know, I could play. So I get, to, I get there and, and he goes, um, my first lesson, he goes, he goes, okay, here, play this. He was at the, oh, oh, I don't know what it is with Italians, he always had that high voice. So uh, he says, here, play this. And I played this, um, I don't know what it was. Don Juan or something. He goes, that's terrific. He says, you got such a range, powerhouse. He goes, hey, do this, Ravel Piano Concerto. So I do it. He goes, are you single tonguing that? I go, oh, that's amazing. I could never single tongue that. You got to tongue like a snake. And then I then I do something else and things. Oh my, look at the jaw. It's amazing. And he's, it's like building me up. Oh my, this is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, you got a terrific sound. You got low range. You got high range. And then he goes, okay, characteristic study number one. Okay, do this up on augmented fourth. And I go, I screw it up completely. And he looks at me and goes, what happened? And he goes, there's nothing wrong with your playing. All you need is a new brain. That was my first lesson. <laughs> and he used to say that to everybody. Uh-huh. I needed a new brain. I went, wow. And he started giving me all this transposition. I drove back from New York to Boston in a fog, going, what the hell is going on? I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And I got back and practice, and I came back. I kept doing that, you know, go get him, go see him. He beat me up. I'd leave. Thank you very much, sir. Can I have another? And finally, I got so pissed off. I gave me one of these socks, etudes, right, in E flat, you know, and I memorized the damn thing. And I just went over there and the next lesson, I turned to that page and I flip it over and I go, you go, uh, what's that? I go, well, you gave me this last time. I want to play it for you. He goes, huh, I don't get to hear it. Turns the page. Okay, do this uh, up and augmented fourth. I go, ah! So that was it. It's like, what do I have to listen for it? You know, you want to practice? Practice. You don't want to practice? That's fine. So that's, you know, it's, it, that's the way things work, but you get better because you were forced to, to sight read and, and do stuff. And then I used to do stuff on a D trumpet all the time. I did all the Mahler symphonies on a D trumpet. I had a nice big D trumpet. It was, you know, just sailed away on that stuff. Except for Mahler 8, never played principal on Mahler 8. But I did it, most of the things on a D trumpet. Sometimes I play a C for diff- different things, but it was fantastic. I mean, it was, he, he taught me a hell of a lot in that respect. So that was, I don't know if you want to call that mellowing out. I don't know. <laughs> was pretty violent to me (laughs) stevens told me that he used to i can't remember who it was he used to take like joint lessons with because stevens was such a advanced musical mind and and the music part came so easily for him that he would have 
whoever was sitting there transposed maybe, you know, it to trumpet in D, something easy. And then he would say, all right, Stevens, your turn. Transpose, you know, an augmented fifth uh, now. And, you know, he would, you know, do an okay job with it. And he would be like, hmm, he could do it. I don't know why you couldn't do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that's interesting. And, and I think it was, I don't know how, if you can speak to this, but part of the concern, according to Stevens, that Bacchiano had and, and people of that era had was that they were part of the orchestral era where you could get fired at the job, you know, that, that somebody like Zell would give you the two weeks notice in the middle of the concert. So they felt that it was their responsibility to have the strongest possible musicians uh, going out into the world. Well, that, yeah, that's because that was before unions. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I heard two stories from a, a conductor. Uh, I used to take conducting lessons uh, part of a course. This guy named Poto, Atilio Poto in Boston Conservatory. And um, he um, was a bass clarinet player. He got hired by Toscanini. And, um, and he was a classical, he says a lot of, a lot of people who played for Toscanini were, were um, maybe sax players that doubled on bass clarinet, which, which they played all, you know, to be a freelance player, you have to play shows and stuff yeah. like that. And, and it was the Wild play. West back then, I mean. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. So, so, but Toscanini wanted somebody who was a legitimate, you know, played legitimately. That's why, you know, my theory on why do we, they, they always ask, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but remind me where I was. Why do they ask for Shahrazad? You know, bum, ba -da -ba -ba, bum, ba -da -ba -ba. it's because if you were a, a commercial player, you go bum, ba -da -ba -ba, bum, ba -da -ba -ba, bum, and that was the identification of whether you could play the sixteenth followed by triplets. Dum, ba -da -ba -ba, bum. They go dum, da -da -da -da, dum, da -da 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 -da, and you could tell right away. No, this is not the guy I want. Today, you know, nobody does that anymore. So I don't know why they keep asking for that excerpt. It's passe. So what was my point? Um, yeah. So um, you were talking about Poto. Yeah, so Poto said, you know, um, um, that people would be getting fired like that, but a lot of people got, went through nervous breakdowns. You never hear about these stories. You hear people that actually committed suicide because of these conductors and what they did to people. And that brings us to, to the modern day today. But anyway, um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it was a really terrible thing. So, but everybody says, oh yeah, Zell, you know, was such a great uh, conductor. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe he was, but but as far as a person goes, I don't think he was a very nice person. The same thing with Reiner. You know, I don't think these are nice people. Why do we revere them as such, you know? Because they made the orchestra sound really good. This is, yeah, yeah he's really tough on the musicians, but, you know, um, but, but it really makes the orchestra sound good. Yeah, right. It also gives you ulcers and, uh, you know, PTD, uh, PTSD as well, you know? And, you know, people didn't measure that before, and there were no... You know, so as far as having, a, and the final, the final story of this is, I was taking a lesson with Jacobs. I took two lessons with Arnold Jacobs, like maybe a year before he died, and um, and he goes, hey, you know, I had a, an injury and I was coming back from this injury, so I wanted to see him. Um, I took one lesson with Chikowitz and 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 with Jake, one with Jake, two with Jacobs, and he says, um, he goes, so uh, how's everything going in Montreal? You know, I said, well, you know. You know, we talked about the conductors, and um, he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, Reiner was like that. You know, he used to, he used to bother me every three years, and he would have me play a solo over and over and over again. Because he tried that with Bud Hurst, but it didn't work. You know, because that, that's the story with uh, 
Yeah. Zarathustra and Butthurst said, you know, you can do this all day, you know, whatever. There's a different story every time I hear it, man, anyway. Because, you know, Hurst knew that, you know, you knew what to do. And so, in a way, Reiner wanted to see if the musician was going to be strong enough and not miss it. So what, what uh, Jacob said, he said, uh, he goes, I asked him, I said, why, why do you do that? Why do you have us repeat these solos like this? And he says, well, you know, I figured if I'm really tough, and you have a major solo and I'm really tough on you during a rehearsal and you don't miss it, then that'll prepare you for the concert so you won't miss it. And I remember Jacob's sitting there shaking his head going, what an asshole. And I went, oh no, Jacob's just called Ryan an asshole. Holy shit. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's kind of like, that's kind of, that but it, it speaks to the point that I think that that was like a transitional period in, in American orchestral music. I mean, when Reiner showed up in Chicago, that was a pickup group with like people that he needed to educate. And that changed quickly. It's like the same with Toscanini, like being such a dick, but you know, at the time there were no trained orchestral musicians, but then it didn't take long for, for the first batch of people to graduate. I mean, Bud Herseth and Jacobs being the first generation of kind of European trained American musicians. And once that happened, then you didn't need those conductors anymore. And we should have stopped trying to employ that technique because it's like you weren't educating anyone at that point. You're, you have educated players. Well, you know, Ozawa said this a long time ago. He said that, you know, the conductors today have to be very, very good because the musicians are are so, have reached such a high level that, you know, there was this little, a uh, schmucky conductor that we had in Montreal. I could say his name, but he's still living. So, um, and we're doing, <laughs> you know, he, sit, he stands up, he's got a gig too, it's amazing. He stands up there when we're doing a Debussy Fats, right? And before we start, you know, that the Fats, mm-hmm. he says, oh, trumpets, he says, uh, you know, those triplets are slurred. He says, they're not supposed to be slurred, you're supposed to tongue them. Go, uh, yeah, I, I knew that when I was like 16 years old, my teacher told me that, you know. I didn't say that, but it's like, Jean-Luc and I were saying, yeah, well, yeah, we know, we know, we know. And he's, he keeps telling us, he's like educating us. It's like, don't you think we know that? Don't you have any trust in us as, as maybe that we might know something? You see, this is, this is what I mean. It's like, the, what is this guy, who does this guy think he is? And he's like, he's like 20 years younger than us. It's like, you know, not that I'm Mr. Old Guy knows everything. It's just like, if you're a conductor, if you're the 18, 20 year old conductor and you think you know everything, why don't you just shut up and listen to the orchestra first before you say anything? And then if you want something to correct, fine. I mean, this is a lesson with conductors and fine. I see conductors today, there's hope for, the, for some people now. I see some very, really fine conductors who sit there and they, they, they stand there, they listen, they listen first of all, which is really unusual for lots of conductors. And then they, then they say, okay, um, let's, let's try this and this and this and this. And sometimes, this conductor that I know, he's fantastic. He doesn't say anything. He says, oh, let's do it again. Just, inevitably, the second time it's done, it's a hell of a lot better. It's like you're already 50% better. So you don't have to say anything. And, it's, and sometimes if you say something, you say too much. And then people overreact. Well, it's also like, uh, it's what you said. The, the musicians in general are more educated than they used to be. I mean, back even when you were studying, there weren't that many places in America that were like highly, highly regarded for music education. Like now that all those people like you have, and everyone I know has spread, now you have more places with competent people. And if you were to go back one generation, it was basically Juilliard and maybe Curtis, you know? 
and it, it you know it's basically created this tree of competent people that can train people and so there's a vast amount of information that's that a conductor like you said is not informing you of anything new at one at some point um and so that also requires that well it's become clear that the conductors that are like very respected and the ones that are magical now in that level that they used to be are geniuses i mean there's nobody in the orchestra quite to their level but there's just not that many of people like that i mean you have like zubin meta you have uh, people like essa pekasalanin that can pick out specific places in things that it's like that their memory of the score is perfect or pierre boulez back in the day who could like point to the 18th viola right by his ear and say you're wrong you know and and that's there's <laughs> there's just too many orchestras for the amount of people that are that you know that competent yeah and why do you have to know whether the 18th viola was wrong or not anyway you know <laughs> what difference does it make well but at that point at that point there's like at that point there's like a level of it's like with zubin meta i mean he was out here recently uh in LA for the first time in years. And the, you can tell, I mean, when he conducted, they did a very interesting thing for the gala. They had uh, Zubin, Esapeka and Dudamil. So like the three living conductors from three different eras. And they're, the three of them are so competent that the orchestra sounded fundamentally different, even within a week of rehearsals that it was like Zubin conducted Wagner and Ravel. And it was creamy, like, chocolate it was just like you know what he's good at and then Esapeka went on and it was this you know the orchestra moving like clockwork and then uh Dudama went on and everything sounded like his hair was on fire and that's great but to command that kind of attention and that kind of shift you better be really special which mm-hmm. Zubin is for example I mean you you really have always talked very highly about him well Zubin had a magic to him and uh you know he would reach inside your stomach grab your guts and then pull it out and then and then you know and then bring you somewhere and, and as you're playing he'd be looking at you you'd be looking at him i remember saying he says russell you have to watch me i said just, yeah, man, yeah i'm playing Mahler nine i'm really freaking out you know and i have to look at the music you know and uh plus you, you know you're all it's a tough piece and <laughs> and he uh you have to watch me. So I, all of a sudden, I started watching him. I don't even know if I was looking at the music anymore. And, and I was playing this thing, and he's looking at me. I'm looking at him, and, and he makes me do this phrase. And I come out and do this phrase. It's like, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. And it comes out, and after I finish, I go, what the hell was that? And he, he looks at me, shakes his head with his eyes wide open. It's like a magical moment just happened. It was like, I didn't even know what happened. And how many times has that happened? Twice, basically, you know? Um, and it's the special conductors like him you know, that, that, uh, that do stuff like that. There was another guy, um, 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 come on, uh, Oslo conductor, uh, I think he just died. Uh, oh, he'll come to me. Ah, forget his name. Anyway, he was great too, because it was different every concert. He's every, we're doing Shostakovich Vibe, I remember. This was also in Israel. And he, and he says, look, I don't know, I don't know what's going to be happening on this concert. We, we had five concerts. We had to do five concerts a week. It was amazing. Every time we did Shostakovich Five, it was different because he just felt like doing something different. It was really nice. You know, stuff like that's really nice. So it's like, that's what I always say. And Zubin really didn't like to rehearse that much. I mean, we would rehearse, but sometimes it's like, oh, okay, that's fine. And then we just play the concert and 
and that would be it. Um, whereas, you know, other conductors like rehearse to get everything exactly right. And, you know, we go on tour and get a sound check and the sound check would last an hour and a half to two hours rehearsing like a certain measures to make sure we get everything correct. It's like, really? Like, okay, we just like erased everything that we were supposed to do. There's no, no more, there's no more magic. Where's the, where's the magic? Where's the spontaneity? Well, but also, I mean, <laughs> you, um, I, I, I can't tell you, man, like how lucky I feel that you were my teacher. Oh, uh, no, I mean, at that, at that, for, for many reasons, obviously, because of my own struggles with the instrument and that being exactly what I needed uh, musically. You had, a good ear. you had a good ear. You could copy really, really well. You, had, right. you heard something and you could do it. And that right. was really good. That was that's your talent there. That was a really special talent you had. Well, I think it it comes from, and this is why I've gravitated towards certain types of teachers. Uh, that uh, I, I the the only emphasis I, I had like trumpet teachers in Colombia, but it was like you know it it's still the wild west in South America in some in some ways that we're in the first generation of kind of like super trained uh, mm-hmm. musicians, but. Uh, one thing that was impressed upon me that I wasn't doing all the scales and drills and learning music, but what I was working on all the time was uh, basically Schlossberg and just working on sound. So like listening became hugely important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you, you were the perfect person for me in that moment. And uh, I think the thing that I feel lucky about apart from everything that you helped me through, it was, Man, you have such a passion for the for being musical. Like you got so pissed if something was bland. Like there was always even when we were when I was starting to get into new music, you said, you know, the problem with new music isn't that it's new music, it's that people play it like it has no emotion or no no you know, repercussions. And where did you get that like that kind of training from where, where how, how why are you so focused on on music being the goal and i think you're correct in focusing on that but i'm just curious where you're coming from it well, i think i got it from two places when i was at nec known the conservatory i took a i took a, a music class with um, ben zander he's yeah. still around today <laughs> crazy crazy ben and uh, you know just a brilliant guy and uh, he was always off the top when it came to um expression and music um, and, um, and he would, he would show this class was like a performance class. And then in, in, he would, um, you know, you would play for him and he, and he, and he asked the class, okay, well, what do you, what do people say about that? Now somebody got their violinist got there and played this thing. Fantastic. I mean, the violinists, they were mostly violinists there. I was the only trumpet player, only brass player, let's put it that way. And, um, so I, I, you know, these guys are playing these, these notes that I can't even barely hear because they're going by so fast that, and, and just like the technique is incredible and everything just looks like amazing. Plus the repertoire, I don't really know the violin repertoire. And he goes, okay, what do you, what do you guys think of this? And I went, I don't know, I'm not going to comment on this at all. And people say, well, it was really, you know, technically really good. Yes, it was technically really good. What else? And then, and then nobody else would say something, but there's something. What is it? And then Xander would just say, it's boring. And he just like crush it, you know, just scream it out. <laughs> because the guy was playing, you know, everything was fantastic and exciting, but without any kind of phrasing. Like, where are you going to, you know, it's like playing a, playing a Bach 
um, sonata and violin, there's this phrasing all over the place. We don't have that capability of doing that. Well, of course we do, but but um, I remember coaching somebody, a violin player on a Bach, on a Bach uh, sonata. And um, I, I said, well, this is really interesting because somebody wants to take a lesson with me, a friend. So I, I started playing it on my trumpet and, and started to figure out, okay, wait a minute, no, this is a phrase right here. Because I remember violin teacher saying to a violin student, when you play the Bach, you have to play it as if you're a brass player because a brass player has to breathe. So where are you going to take a breath? Because violinists don't even think about that. So if you think about where you're gonna take a breath and how to prepare for it, then you start to develop a phrase going. And this is what Xander was, was talking about too. So we kind of opened the door as far as that goes, because, you know, again, I was taught, as you said, you have to stay in the box, you have to play orchestral music exactly this way. It almost had nothing to do with soloistic music because you had to be really stiff and straight and everything had to be just right, that, 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 that. Boring. It was really what it came out to be. And the other, the other one was Charlie, Charlie Schluter, where he said, you know, I asked him, I said, you can actually do this with this? Because I was told you have to be very straight playing it. Oh, you can bend it here. You can fool around with this here and there. And, you know, there's a point where you can go and either go for it or back off, whatever. So that kind of, whenever I take a piece of music, I, regardless of what it is, I try, and regardless of how simple it is, it has to make sense to me. Like there's a, a piece that everybody was playing at one point. What's that thing called? Uh, Centennial Horizon, that's it. Uh, nice piece, beautiful piece, different kind of music for trumpets, very melodic and, you know, full of cotton candy and stuff. And it's very, but very nice, very pleasing. So I decided to learn this piece because everybody was playing in a recital. It's like, what the hell is going on with this piece? It's like this long, 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 long phrase. And finally, when I started practicing, I go, no, this phrase, this phrase is in here that you have to find and make these phrases happen. Otherwise, it sounds boring. And everybody was sounding boring. So I forced myself to try to find out the music that makes sense to me. And when it finally makes sense to me, then, then it projects in that particular way. Because now I have an idea and understanding of what to do, and I can do it convincingly. And again, that's the word, convincing, to try to bring this music out so that it sounds convincing. And there's also, the, you know, the one, two, three, four method where the, all music is one, two, three, four. Strong, weak, strong, weak. The first beat's strong, the second beat's weak. The third beat's strong, and as strong as one, and the fourth beat is weak, weaker than two. So it's one, two, three. For. So if you follow that basic pattern in music and in phrases, even the phrases, strong, weak, strong, weak. Now, sometimes it's going to be different. So if it's different, so what? Then just make something up, make something else happen. And just as long as you're thinking in this kind of way, then the music is going to be fluid and it's going to be fooling around. Your tone will change, your sound will change, your articulation will change. You get more articulation, less articulation. You get all these different things that create a different certain tone. But to keep the same articulation all the way through, you know, as I said, people play Mahler and Mozart the same way, you know, or Bruckner and Mozart, you know, da, 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 Mozart, da, 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 Beethoven, da, da, da. It's a little hard because it's, you know, romantic. Which brings me to an audition that I took once. <laughs> I mean, you know, never mind. I'm not going to say it. But it's, it's, <laughs> you know, there's, there's certain things that I find acceptable and certain things that I find detestable and, and certain things that I can play with and certain things that I can't. And 
and it comes to auditions, like, you know, you have to play next to somebody. If you can't blend with this person and you're totally in disagreement to where they articulate something, I don't care what kind of a job it is. If it pays you like ultimate billions of dollars a year, you're going to be miserable unless you're playing principal. Then you can do what you want because that's an easy job. Playing first is the easiest job in the world. Playing second is probably the toughest. Playing third, your assistant or associate principal. Usually associate principal is better than assistant. And playing fourth, again, just make sure you have enough valve oil for everybody so that in case they run out. <laughs> but that's another that's another concern though, actually, because I feel like everyone's preparing to be a principal trumpet player. And that's okay. I mean, I, I understand why. But there's this this uh, breed of very dissolutioned fourth. Uh, utility trumpet uh, around the world that I think other people would be very happy in that job. You know, you take somebody up in Montreal like uh, Amy Horvey, who has so many interests. Mm -hmm. uh, something like playing fourth trumpet in a, in, a, in an orchestra is perfect for her because you know she goes in, uh, she does a great job, and then she has time for all her other shit. Uh, but it's it, we are not being specific enough anymore. Everyone's just out to get a job in the orchestra that they don't really think whether they're going to be happy even in the role that they're supposed to be fulfilled. Well, playing fourth, look at playing third is is a gas. I mean, I mean, um, I played first, and and just a, every all the repertoire I played first, all the repertoire, a lot, a large part of the repertoire. So when I played third, I knew exactly what to do in the third part in order to support the first by pushing or coming back, and depending on on what they were doing, I knew how to make the job easier for the first guy. And it didn't matter who it was, when it just came out to music, I, I would push here or back off there. And, you know, ask, ask people that, that were playing first and I was playing third, they'll say that, you know, I was always supportive. It didn't matter what kind of personality I, I had towards them at all. It didn't even get in the way, I, you know, you know what I'm saying. But the thing is, that never got in the way. I never got let, let uh, somebody's personality get in the way of me music making because, because, because uh, I enjoyed music too much. I'm not going to let somebody's attitude affect that. So when you're playing, you don't have to talk to anybody. That's the nice part. Just like, uh, just like COVID nineteen. The nice part about that is like everybody from the orchestra now they're on vacation from each other. It's probably a nice thing because. They... <laughs> well, and how do you feel about that? Actually, I mean, I think that you are a pretty. I, I, you might not remember telling me this, but you said that one of your frustrations with the fact that you. Um, you had to make sure every, you know, because institutions require that everyone graduate and all this, that one of your problems with that was that you sometimes felt like uh, your responsibility was to make somebody survive in whatever, uh, you yeah. know, to make their abilities help them survive in a musical world. So, do I mean, what do you think is going to change for the people that are, so focused on only training audition prep prep and not all the other musical stuff right now because i mean as i see it i don't think people realize how bad this is going to get for all orchestras including some of the a-level orchestras even the ones that can weather the storm you're talking about this the, the virus situation. yeah because i mean i, I don't think yeah. here in america things are going to open up realistically <laughs> until like if we're lucky 2021 if we're not much later and the 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 financial i mean if canada is a little different but here in the united states orchestras have been behaving uh they have not been smart with the way they operate financially 
I mean, with these incredibly large salaries for people that that make no sense, the conductor contracts that are only two, 12 weeks, but yet pay $2 million, the CEOs that make like $6 million, it's, it just doesn't make sense. So uh, do you think, what do you think is going to happen to the, I, I, I've, I guess I'm asking because I've, I've a lot of, I have a lot of peers that are still continuing to prepare for auditions, not realizing like nobody's going to be hiring well, uh, yeah. and, and things are going to be collapsing. So what, what do you think would be important now to, to be trying to tell people that are still in school or, you know, what would you focus on? What, what do you think it's going to look like? Um, let me just, uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. So yeah, go for it. Um, okay. Uh, you know, this happened in the, I guess in the seventies when um, I guess Reagan was in and he cut the national endowment for the arts. A lot of orchestras in the United States, anyway, were, were surviving on a large amount of money from the National Endowment for the Arts. When he cut that, the orchestras that survived were the ones that had an endowment, because they didn't even think of endowments then. They were just depending on the money from the National Endowment. The National Endowment. So then they get a lot of people to, so the major orchestras survived, but they, they also struggled. A lot of small orchestras just dissipated completely. Um, they started up again in another way, I guess, but um, there's quite a few orchestras hanging around now. So that that made them survive. That cleared the way of of that um, that situation. So so people figured out a way of of keeping it afloat, or starting over in a different way that that was not so dependent. Now that we're in another situation, it's that uh, um, you know, it comes out to two things. It comes out that I mean, how did orchestras begin in the first place? It began by European influence of, of wealthy people, the Carnegies, Vanderbilts, um, Astors, who wanted to have their culture, their European culture. They could not survive without having opera or, or, or symphony. And that's how the New York Philharmonic started. It started with a, a core group of 35 musicians. Just like when I got the job in Memphis, Tennessee, it was a core group of 35 musicians. Not, you know, it's pretty, and that's a pretty good orchestra. That was a pretty good orchestra when I was there. Um, and a lot of orchestras are like that. You know, they have that core. So then, then, and then these people said, well, if we want to have a symphony orchestra, we're going to have to give these people a steady job so they don't have to have another job to support themselves so they can be full-time musicians. And then we'll just hire other people to fill in. And that was the concern. I mean, there's a place in the European mentality in arts was, was much more valuable uh, asset for them than, than, than America. America wasn't used to that kind of situation. And it still isn't, I don't think. I mean, I remember Charlie Schluter was telling me that somebody, a patron or somebody even on the board said, uh, said to him, uh, so, so what do you do? He goes, oh, I play trumpet with the Boston Symphony. He goes, oh yeah, oh, really? Oh, that's good. So, but what else do you do? Like, like, you know, you can't possibly make a living doing that. You know, and this, this is the Boston Symphony. Right? So people still think this way. It doesn't matter where you are. So, so the what I think is going to have to happen if if people want arts, culture, dance, theater, the government's going to have to support it. It's going to have to come. It's going to be. It's going to have to be like it, what's in Europe. Is like part of, a large part of your taxes go towards um, the, the orchestra. It's when we were in Vienna. I remember talking to some people then, and, and the, um, the Viennese people said, 
Oh, our orchestra. It's not the orchestra, not the Vienna, uh, the Vienna Symphony. It's our orchestra because they have invested in that orchestra and it becomes their orchestra. They own it. They have a part of it. And there's a certain pride and ownership to it. You don't have that too much in the States, you know? So um, I hope it's not too late when people realize that, you know, we need to have, we need to have uh, uh, some art and, and music. You know, or, or, you know, forget about the national anthem during football games and baseball games because that's music too. You're not going to support it. And then fine, just everybody's singing on your own. Maybe that's what's going to have to happen. Because there's music everywhere you go. There's music. Unless, you know, even silent movies had music. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, it's all part of the, the, that scene. Um, the other thing is that just recently I read this thing about this guy on Spotify who's a billionaire that, that uh, says musicians have to record more, you know, why? So he can make more money. So, and he gives everybody 0.0003% cents uh, per album. You know, so musicians are now putting stuff on the internet, getting notoriety, but you know, how are you gonna survive on that unless you, you get paid in some aspect of things? So things, that has to work out better. Maybe the union should get involved with, with saying anytime you put something on the internet and people listen to it, you get paid for it. And, um, and the other, the other thing is, um, oh, I had something else I didn't want to say, but I forgot. Anyway. Well, but speaking to that too, it's like, uh, you know, there, there two things. There's a big difference that needs to be understood that is not understood by most Americans that go to conservatory to train to be musicians, which is what you just mentioned. I think in Scandinavia and in Northern Europe, uh, like German speaking cultures, that is their culture. I mean, they will sooner uh, defund their pension plans than the Berlin Philharmonic. I mean, that's kind of how it goes, uh, both in, in Sweden and, and Denmark and also particularly in Germany and to a lesser degree in France, but still. Uh, that's not something that is true here. I mean, to be honest, if you tell most people that the Los Angeles Philharmonic is going to close, you're going to have a minority of people say, that's so sad, how can we save it? And most people say, what's the LA Philharmonic? Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's just how it is. It's just not, it's an import, like we've said. It, it's an import to this culture. Um, but the other part of it, um, we've created an education for our our current musicians in the classical world that's not up to speed with the world that I don't see the same struggles that we're seeing in the classical world in most of my jazz musician friends and definitely none of my pop friends that uh, they've been taught to be self-sufficient in a world that's coming. So I, I actually think that Spotify will likely eventually collapse because people can handle their own platforms at home and sell their own things. But the classical world is still living under this impression that we're all waiting for record contracts. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, I, I, I'm concerned that we're, we might be too late to the game that by the time that we realize we need to change the music education part components in, in conservatories, it's going to be being taught by people that are already 20 years behind the curve. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's complicated. Well, you know, Stravinsky wrote his, his works like uh, the Octet and the uh, L'Histoire de Soldat uh, during a time when there was uh, um, uh, the depression, basically, and, and, the, and the people could not afford a large group. So he wrote for smaller things and survived in that and, and reinvented that whole thing. Luckily, 
that unfortunate situation happened. So he, he wrote these chamber works that we have today. So so that worked. And I see that as a, as a copy of what probably what needs to be done now. I just saw something on that slip disc. Um, I don't know if to, Norman Lebrecht has this um, uh, thing called slip disc. And he talks about all the arts. And this guy, Ivan Fisher, was talking about uh, the Festival Orchestra of, of, uh, of Budapest. Is it Budapest? Yeah. And that he's done something different there. And what he he's doing, I mean, you could agree or not agree, is that he took, uh, uh, he brought the whole thing back to a core musicians that get paid a certain amount of money, a base pay. Now, if you do extra, you want to create your own quartet or quintet, whatever, and you do extra, then you'll, then then the orchestra acts as an agent and sponsors you, and then you get paid more. And um, so so it's a core orchestra and all these little satellites that go out and play these different things, and the orchestra books you in different places. Um, um, or they'll, they'll have a general concert where they'll feature you during a concert, the symphony orchestra, and um, you know things along that line. So it's and it becomes a variety of music. It's not just the same thing. Like some people will play like Hungarian folk music or something like that or whatever. So it becomes this huge variety of different styles of music for one concert, which really is kind of satisfying in, in that particular way as well. Instead of this like, um, you know, we have an overture and then we're gonna have a soloist and then we have a symphony, you know, and that's the pattern that people seem to be going on right now. Every now and then throw in a contemporary work or something like that. And everybody goes, what the hell is that? So it, it's, so it's, you know, I guess things are going to have to be a little bit more entertaining. Um, large orchestra has to break up into smaller groups, into two groups. And they're doing that here in Montreal. They've been doing that for a while. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, satellite situations like that where the orchestra will survive in that particular way because you have to have this separation of people that's with, this, with this virus thing. So I think that's probably... What's going to happen is like small group orchestras will survive by splitting it up into smaller groups and, and doing it that way. The, the only danger of that is, uh, you know, what Ivan Fisher was talking about is they get rid of the contract. So they can do what they want now, which, which like now is stepping backwards and it becomes a matter of trust now. Okay, well, you, so, you know, I mean, the whole point of the reason why I had unions is because people took advantage of people and and uh, there was unfairness going on. So maybe it'll be okay for a few years until somebody starts taking advantage of the situation. Hopefully not. And then that'll blow out of proportion once again. But I think that something like that has to survive. So people have to be more flexible and more versatile rather than just saying, I'm a symphony orchestra trumpet player and that's what I do. <laughs> but, but you also have to be like... Uh entrepreneurial like what you're talking about Stravinsky reminds me of a group in New York uh whose trumpet player is great is he's the guy who plays with Paul Simon uh, CJ his yeah. other pet project is this thing called Y music in New York City and uh -huh. Y music is a combination of instruments that you would not expect to be together it's like a cellist and a viola player and a couple woodwinds and then CJ who's a trumpet player and it's uh, he says it's really funny because he'll go to these seminars and people will say, oh, I, I made a Y music. And he's like, that's great that you just get together with your friends and have like a people that you are like-minded and you're making music. It's like, no, no, no. I got a viola player, a cello player, a violinist. And he's like, well, that's kind of missing the point. Like right. uh, what we're, we should be advocating is what you said is like um, very flexible, competent musicians that can go out and make opportunities with people that are like-minded, that they enjoy right. doing whatever they're doing with and if you what what that is for you is i don't know being the canadian brass if that's what gets you off good for you but that doesn't 
mean that somebody else has to do the same thing. Right. right. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting what what's going to happen, but I, I think like the more the ones of us that have been educated to think musically instead of in this one path. I mean, it, I, I'm not as scared, honestly. And I, and some I of the people I've, I've talked about it are less scared. I don't think it's going to die. I mean, there's always no. going to, people are always going to want music. You know? Of course. And of course, I mean, the big orchestras are probably going to survive it, but there's just not going to be that many smaller ones to just, Mm-hmm. you know and the jobs are going to get limited so then that becomes a responsibility from the part of conservatories and universities to not be training people in a field that's not relevant in a way yeah um well see I, you know unfortunately people for some reason you know i never wanted to play in a symphony orchestra i never even thought about it i, I was having too much fun doing all kinds of other things you know i was playing in uh, you know, when I was 16 years old, I was playing in a polka band, you know, and, and I was making money. Uh, my first gig was taps, you know, I played taps at a military funeral. I got, I figured out how much money, I got 25 bucks. <laughs> and I counted it out how many notes, like it was like 10, 15 cents a note. I said, wow, man, this is great. If I can get paid 15 cents a note, I mean, yeah, I wish I did. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I could deduct that off my taxes. It's um, like the Crown Royal. and i was having great i I was having fun i was just having fun and i was making money and i was surviving even in school i was playing with uh, with this polka band and i played with an italian band we used to do weddings and all kinds of things then um i played in a rock band like a chicago blood sweat and tears style funk rock you know stuff like that that was a great band it was a lot of fun and then i went back i had to quit school to do that then i went back and then started studying again. I mean, I, and even after that, I was doing lots of teaching and playing different kind of gigs. Um, it's only when I started again, went back to school, got my master's that I decided, you know, maybe I should start being a little bit more serious and try to get a steady job. Cause I started freelancing in Boston when I be- went back to school and I started getting gigs and they were just, you know, they're freelance gigs and freelance is like, you know, you, you play one gig, it's going to be really great. And next gig is going to be like the most ridiculous thing you've ever experienced in your life. I said, what the heck is this? Are you kidding me? This is like a clown act, you know? Which is, if it was a clown act, if they said, you're going to be playing trumpet in the back of a clown. I went, okay. But these were serious people who (laughs) acted like clowns. I mean, a circus is one thing, but this was like, I I said, I can't do this. I can't, I can't stand. So that, it takes a lot to be a freelance musician. It takes a lot of stamina. It takes a lot of flexibility. You have to be a great musician in order to survive and that kind of thing, because you have to do everything. And you have to do it right on the spot. All of a sudden you're playing some, some crazy job that requires you to, you know, stand on top of your head and wear a tutu. And then uh, the next day you're playing uh, with the Boston Symphony, like in a Mahler Symphony. It's like, you know, that's a lot of flexibility. That's tough to take. So I decided I better just get a steady job. And that's where the symphony orchestra came in, where it was, it was comfortable. I had a steady paycheck and that was the nice thing about it. And I got the benefits, you know, so it says, okay, I think I'll do this. And that's when I got, when the, well, I had won the job at Rhode Island Philharmonic. And then I, my visa bill started getting higher and higher from taking all these auditions. And uh, that's when I won Memphis and paid off my visa bill. <laughs> no, but it's like, you know, I tell people, you have to be kind of hungry. Fakiano said that to me. He goes, what do you want to do? I said, it'd be nice to get a symphony job. He goes, you're not ready for a symphony job. You're going to be hungry. You're not hungry enough. 
you know, and I went, okay, you know, I, mean, I, uh, I don't know what that means. And I found out what it means. So you have to be, that's it. You have to be like, holy crap, I got to pay my visa bill. I got to do something. <laughs> this, was so, this was something, man, that I went into with both uh, Sax and Bilger. Oh, yeah. uh, this, this new thing that's been happening, I, I, it even started happening in, in my opinion around like 2014, 15. That's when I started noticing it at least, that you have these top-level players bouncing from top-level school to top-level school until they're like 40. I mean, they're not 40, but you know what I mean. So they're like, you have some kid who graduates from Juilliard, he's already a, a incredible and he'll go to Colburn and he's already incredible and he'll go to Northwestern and then Rice and then just collecting degrees because they're so afraid of being out in the open and they have certain teachers that tell them, come here and you'll win a job from here. And I think it removes what you just said. It removes reality. It removes being hungry. There's something compelling about your having to survive and pay your rent and you have to find time to motivate yourself to practice and prepare that list and find the money to go take that audition. And you have to do it within a time frame because you have to get back to work. It actually boosts your, your commitment to that list. Cause it's not like, Oh, well, if I don't make this, I'll just go back and prepare for the next one. It's more like, man, I just spent three grand to do this shit. Like, and I have to get back to work. Like how much time do I actually have to put into this? And, it, like you said, it it makes you it makes you really evaluate and, and be hungry. Well, you want to put that time into it anyway. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like, you know, a lot of people base their life on on whether they win a symphony orchestra job or not, as far as them being a su- successful musician. And I and I heard your interview with with uh, Hoke and saying that you know this is not the, the way you should think. It's just a matter what he said was right on. I know people that that feel that they're failures because they haven't gotten a job in a symphony orchestra, and that seems to be the deciding point. And it's not at all. It's 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 uh, it's probably you know becomes somewhat of an unmusical situation with the job, um, and it's you know it's not healthy either. <laughs> it's not a healthy environment. It's not a healthy situation. So unless you can keep yourself alive and and uh, and you're dealing with nice colleagues, you know, then you can work a musical situation out. That's nice, but you know, do other things, um, play other things and, you know, even learn carpentry or, you know, because if you love to play and you want to be a musician, there's a, there's a good chance that, you know, I'm not going to say people, I remember somebody saying, um, you know, there's 50 of us in the class and out of you 50, only three of you are going to make it. Well, what the what the hell does that mean? What does making it mean? First of all, like what what do you mean by making it? What is that? Give me an identification. What what's? I knew this guy when I was in school. He had a difficult time playing, real difficult time playing, um, and, and he graduated, and he could play like two tunes, pretty good, like a like a trumpet voluntary and something else, you know, trumpet tune, whatever. And this the, so this guy, as far as being a professional musician, yeah, this doesn't he doesn't have a chance in hell. But what did he do? He found his little niche, uh, made a recording of these two tunes, sent it to people who are getting married. They call him up. He, every every weekend, the guy had four weddings. He was making hundreds of dollars on a weekend, paying his rent in one weekend by playing weddings. Now, you tell me that's not making it or not. That, that's making it. Depends what's your what's your idea of making it. Playing in a symphony orchestra. 
Is that making it or just really enjoying yourself and having a great time? I know people who are doctors and lawyers and you know, doctors especially that, that love to play trumpet. And they were a doctor and they, 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 play, they play trumpet and they, and they love it. Well, that's making it too. What does making it mean? Making doesn't mean anything. And even if you don't become a, a full-time musician, just the fact that you studied music, and I believe this, has already developed you in a certain way of figuring things out that if you want to study, become a doctor or a lawyer, you already have a, a, a creative mentality. How many lawyers are there that are not creative? How many doctors are not creative? You're going to be creative to do all these things. You know? To be a doctor, you can't just be a surgeon. You have to know carpentry, electricity, uh, plumbing. <laughs> You're going to sew people's, sew, you have to know how to sew. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to have all these expertise, you know, so, so it, it's, it's good to have all these different kinds of things that you can do and, and have fun with what you're doing. It really comes down to fun. If you can get paid for it, that's even better. You know, so. Well, and it's like uh, in that thing with Hokan, he also said this, that I, I always loved, you said this to me once, you were writing these reviews for uh, like the school had asked you to name some of your notable alum and or successful alum. That's how they phrase it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. you said, well, what does that mean? Like I have a lot of uh, students that are out being happy and perfectly successful. They just aren't in a symphony orchestra. They're, you know, they, right. they're doing something else, but I mean, they're perfectly happy and successful. And it's, it's a little like uh, Hogan said this at, at the end of the talk, but my one of my mentors, Dan Rosenboom, said to me when I graduated my master's, he was like, nobody owes you an artistic life. Nobody told you that by practicing during school, you are owed a job now in the arts. Like, it's hard. It's, it's, it's not for everyone. It's very difficult. And if you need certain things, you might not get them here. And also, the other big part, which is what you were saying, in order to have an artistic life doesn't mean that your money has to come from that element. In fact, some great artists don't get their money from that. I mean, Nate Woolley in New York, I think works as a cataloger for records for the library of Congress. And he's one of the most creative trumpet players we've ever had on earth. And you had people like Charles Ives and there's just, Right. This this idea that you to make it like you say you have to get a job in one of the least creative institutions, uh, in the arts, and the universities are putting that pressure on us by, by asking these questions on these evaluations that I had to fill. Yeah, they don't ask that question anymore. Maybe it has to do with what I said. I don't know. <laughs> Some of my most creative students are not playing in music. They're just happy with what they're doing, and they you know they dabble with it here and there. And some of the students that I have are, are CEOs in symphony orchestras, you know, right. doing other things. So you can still be in the in the arts, and and you know, the, yeah, there they, there are lots of people that that I that I know are, do, are doing things that are involved in music, but they're not playing, or they are playing on the side. Right. You know? Well, to me, look, I I've, I was I freelance out here in LA, and a lot of I, I ended up getting a part time job in a nonprofit. Um, so I like management, uh, partially because of what you said, that this freelancing thing was one week with the L.A. Phil and then next week playing with a Korean Christian uh, uh, middle school band association, you know, and you're you're, you're wow. getting paid. But, it, <laughs> but, you know, it's like different levels of, of gig, even though they pay 
the same. And that was frustrating because like, like you said, I mean, if I was basing and it was kind of an ego trip, if you're basing your success on the amount of gigs you have instead of whether you're actually living the artistic life that you thought you were going to be living, then you're probably failing by, or I was, I felt I was failing by doing all this shit. And so I got a job in a nonprofit that I love doing uh, this work and, uh, this is the part that I think needs to be emphasized at music schools. It's not a failure to depart from that path because like you said, everything that I've learned as a musician is what makes me highly competitive as, as an administrator because I've been in rehearsals with difficult people because I've had to evaluate my own work. I've had to produce my own shows. I've, I've had to really hustle for my career in, in the arts. I've had to sacrifice, know when to sacrifice money to go take a lesson or not. I mean, you, you have to budget your own life. It's all these tools. It's not like you're throwing them out because you couldn't go and play Petrushka at an orchestra. I mean, I don't think there's any other profession. <clears throat> that train that goes through the mental training that we go through the, the, the concentration, the practice, the time and working out the finite and, and coordinating our fingers and our lips and our breath and our brains to produce a particular sound, to make a particular sound, to do a particular thing that is an abstract, that is a tone that we form with our lips and our tongue and our, and our breath, the fast air, slow air, that, that you know we 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 are, are you know that that's what makes up a little us a little bit crazy too and um and and we don't think i mean a lot of, i never thought about what i was you know i, I think a lot of people do we go to school we learn how to play trumpet because we want to learn how to play trumpet or play play our instrument and then we get out going oh what am i going to do like, well, maybe I should have thought about whereas, you know, if you go to business school, yeah, you're going to get a job in a business. Or if you go to a lawyer, you're a lawyer or a doctor, you're going to be a doctor. You know, you can specialize being a podiatrist or you can do all the different kinds of avenues. But uh, music is, uh, you know, you have these different avenues too, but we just kind of go for it. And I remember when I was in high school <laughs> and uh, I went to a guidance counselor and um, and she goes, so what do you want to do when you get out of school? I said, well, I, I, I want to, I want to be a musician. I want to be a musician. Never want to be a musician. Why trying to set the? Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll be a dentist. <laughs> yeah, I was always interested in being a dentist anyway. You know? <laughs> and then of course, ah, that's better. That's better. So they, she gave me this list. <laughs> this. She gives me this list of all these professions. Okay, a doctor, a lawyer, a school teacher, a, a university teacher, a fireman, and it had the salaries next to it. This is back in the seventies and the sixties, whatever. And it's like you know, uh, a lawyer and a doctor, you make so much money per year. And then and it comes down. It comes down. The last last one was artist slash musician. It had income zero dash question mark they went that's what i want to do <laughs> so look at the rolling stones these guys are making billions of dollars you know and uh you know look at some poor ass trumpet players where we're not making anything so you know i mean these are the chances we take and are we in it for the money or are you in it because because of this kind of desire that you have i mean i, I know a friend of mine who went to school to, to become an engineer. He got his engineering degree and he wanted to play trumpet. So he went to music school and now he's playing trumpet and conducting and doing all kinds of stuff. So, but he's not, 
you just went to engineering school maybe because his parents told him to, I guess. I don't know. But uh, there's this passion that you have. And that's why we do it, because of this, this passion that, that unexplainable, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and think that's as good as... You're orchestra and you're losing your passion and then you retire. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I still have you... passion. I still have passion. <laughs> but you know, I, I honestly like that's part of it that doesn't get talked about, man. Especially here in North America. Well, Canada again is a little different, but here in the United States where there's like no mandatory retirement age. Uh yeah. It's it's kind of creepy to me that Bud Herseth was in there until he was 80 and that we lost off on an entire generation of masterful troublers that never got a shot at that gig. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, okay, well fine, I get it. But at the same time you look at Europe and the orchestra is not the end all be all. I mean, you, you have somebody like Reinhold Friedrich does it for a couple of years, retires early, records some albums, becomes a teacher, you know, uh, and there's many examples like that. Uh, it's, it's a little, like you said, I, I mean, I'm glad you're saying you're not, it didn't ruin you and make you bitter, but you know, it does for a lot of people. <laughs> I don't sound bitter. Do I sound bitter? <laughs> Not anymore, Russ. Cause... <laughs> oh, I haven't, uh, you haven't seen the bitter part yet. Okay. <laughs> you haven't asked the right questions. That's, that's right. That's my fault. <laughs> I really, I'm, I'm going to deny this audience that pleasure. <laughs> well, the teaching situation in Europe um, um, is, is actually pays more than, than a symphony orchestra. Yes. And it's like, uh, it's a goal. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it, the goal is that you'll retire the orchestra young enough to get that, right? You know, pony. You know, the big, the big goal of the good teaching position, which right. will pay you more, and you can retire in. Like the Concertabau, I mean, they they don't pay as well as the United States. And who was playing there? Damerov, Fritz Fritz Damerov. He was playing there. He retired. Then Giuliano Summerhalder was there for a little bit. Uh, they just hired a new principal two or three years ago. I don't remember who he. Yeah, was. the Italian guy, mm-hmm. Tom Cena, something like that, and um, great player. But uh, but the teaching situation is 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 a much more stable and better situation. Although you know Frankfurt, I remember somebody getting a job at Frankfurt Symphony Orchestra years ago in the eighties, and uh, that was a good paying gig back then. That was a really good paying. Gig. Also, you need less money in Europe. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You can if you get paid, I don't know, forty after taxes, forty thousand euro in Paris. It, even though that's an expensive city, those musicians survive okay because they right. can have kids because the the system takes care of their education and their healthcare and et cetera, et cetera. So you were in Europe for a while. Where, where were you in Europe? Yeah, I, I spent uh, a little less than a year with Cassone in oh. Novara in Italy. And that was pretty interesting. Then I came back to LA with, uh, well, just to be in LA, but, you know, with Ed. Uh, and right. then... From there, I've been for the past, since 2016, I've been going to Sweden every once in a while to like every year to see Hokan here and there. Okay. So, you know, it's been interesting, but I mean, it's it, the cool part is seeing the other side of this with the colleagues that I have in Europe. Like, right. um, it's different. I mean, the concerns are different, mm. but also the, the training is different, man. It's like, it's more like what it used to be back back when you were training that it was the conservatory didn't think that it was their responsibility what you did afterwards that wasn't a marketing tool it was more the responsibility was to generate a good musician right and, so they when they and the auditions are different too aren't they yes i mean of course i mean the i mean you 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 probably were still part of that too i mean i remember you 
The last audition I remember you taking was that Boston Symphony audition. Shh. <laughs> we won't include this, but <laughs> <laughs> but I almost got that gig too. Yeah, but but I I but you know like the man like the auditions I've taken uh, are also different between here and Europe. Like I went to the Chicago Lyric Opera. There were 150 people. Wow. There were four days of prelims uh, for associate principal, I think. Principal trumpet Gothenburg Opera in Sweden, which is a major opera house in Sweden. With, they do Wagner. They do all the big... They're bigger than the Chicago Lyric in many ways. 17 applicants. And I was so pissed because my experience came all from America that... I thought, man, I should have taken that lyric opera and just concentrated on this. There were 17 fucking applicants. Like, there you can actually do something. Right. Um, but here in America, it's, it's so ridiculous. Why were there only 17? Did they have a screening process or just the, the people applied there were only 17 people interested? They have a screening process. The other thing is, like, I don't think European students are as obsessed with learning how to play excerpts. Uh, they get trained in musical stuff, kind of like a meter and they do a lot of solfege and then they have great trumpet lessons but they're not uh they don't have this kind of orchestral school theory and and except for the paris conservatory very few orchestras can actually put together an orchestra i mean it's like the orchestra sucks at most conservatories the training is good but the ensemble big ensembles are crap and so ironically the americans my peers in america they think it's so complicated to get over to europe to take an audition mm-hmm. so the people that would be the most competitive for those jobs don't show up and then the europeans are happily just going to where it suits them so you get you also get this thing where you don't get as many applicants like if, if a german guy from munich doesn't really think that he wants to live in a cold place like sweden he won't audition you don't see that here here it's just like there's a job i'm gonna go follow Under that boat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the applicants is less. It's less. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, Thunder Bay always had a at an opening. It had a principal trumpet opening. That was my first application. <laughs> I, I looked at it. I said Thunder Bay principal trumpet. I went. That's when I started auditioning. I went Thunder Bay. So where the heck is that? And I looked on the map. I found that. I said, Ah, I'm not going there. <laughs> Forget it. Like tip of. But you know lip. what? Like honestly, it's so true. And honestly, I, I mean. People, I'm not obsessed with this, and this is why I find it fascinating, but the people that are, that I know, like especially my friends from Colburn and shit, uh, they think it's so crazy of me that I only take auditions in places that I'm like, I could move for that job. Like, that sounds, I mean, I've talked to the colleagues there. Everyone seems like it's a a cool place to work. Um, That's a fun city. But most people, they just audition to absolutely anywhere. Uh, and, And... but it's getting crazy because like every small audition will have like 400 applicants. Well, yeah, you know, uh, and that's, you know, we're getting back to that. It's like, that seems to be what's going on in conservatories now and that, that people are taking auditions, learning how to practice to take an audition. And like, what are you, what are you getting? What are you getting from that? What are you getting the content? You're getting someone that can really take an audition really well. And that knows how to go through the process of doing that and winning a job. And um, there's a pattern, you know, and I, I know what this pattern is now. I can, I can, um, I can ah, almost guarantee if that I've shown somebody who, who has the ability to, to know how to do it, uh, I can make them win an audition because of certain kind of uh, tricks that you can do. 
So it's 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 um it's a matter of knowing tricks. I'll tell you one trick, and this is that this is one of them that um you know I can always tell who these people study with because they use this trick. But now it's like common knowledge. But like for Schumann too, you know, da, 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 yeah. you know this this horrible thing that everybody pinches and squeezes and presses. This they all they all use the p the triple p method. You know what that is? What is that? Pinch, press, and pray <laughs> to try to get the thing. That's a triple p method. <laughs> but so you, what you do is you take a flugelhorn mouthpiece right. and. Um, Actually, you know, I, I, I mentioned because I, I talked with Phyllis Stork about this. I said, I need a flugelhorn thing and mouthpiece. So they made this thing, and then um, um, the the lead pipe, the lead pipe, the shank is shorter to, yeah. to accomplish. I have one, I have one from when we you took me down there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's okay, great. Good. It's an amazing tool. Yeah, so there you go. So you pop that thing in, and you can you almost can't miss that that lick, and plus. It comes out so so mellow and soft, and you can actually put more air into it, and you can tongue harder because it doesn't matter how hard you tongue in a flugelhorn mouthpiece, you're not going to get a, you're going to get a, and it's going to sound beautiful. So you know, there you go, and you're going to impress the committee. You're like, oh my god, that sounds fantastic. I, I remember taking an audition a long time ago, Columbus Symphony, and they had the second movement of the Haydn trumpet concerto. So everybody takes out the E flat trumpet, right? And they play the second. So why do you need an E flat trumpet to play the second movement of the Haydn trumpet concerto? So I use my B flat, and I hear the people in the back of the committee go, "Finally, we got somebody that has a tone." Because you're not going to sound good in an E flat trumpet. You're going to sound tinny and squeezed and nasal. So you use yeah. a B flat trumpet, and you sound all of a sudden it's like, "Wow!" Of course, I made it in the finals. I, you know, I, I don't even know what the result of that whole thing was. Uh, uh, no, I think uh, the guy who was principal there before kept winning the job. That's what it was. <laughs> but you stuff like this. I mean, I remember you teaching us these tricks, and they're very useful. I mean, these tricks are useful. They save careers. They save you in a complicated yeah. moment. But there's such an obsession with the trick now more than the actual. Yes. Yes. I mean, and so that part has been kind of revealing to me, both in when we used to work on things, but also like uh, talking to my European colleagues that are winning auditions there not here right. that the concerns of the educators there are different they're more like what you do or what you hear people from before do as well that it's this why do they want human too they want to hear if you can keep time and if it's evident that you can portray time right. And that's the big thing. It's not even about missing or not missing the note. It's about how clear is it to me that you're in four four, right? You know, and that I can count it. And and it's so funny because I feel like people are obsessed with the wrong thing. They they think that it's yeah. about missing the C. It's like no, man. It's yeah. a, the conductor doesn't give a shit. The guy behind the panel just wants to hear that you're evident in your time. Well, maybe the guy behind the panel is wants to do that, but sometimes yeah, yeah, they sure. auditions that they they put on. Look, and I tell people all the time when we have. I told students of mine, I think maybe you was part of you guys too, uh, these guys, I said, look, if there's ever an audition with Montreal, fourth trumpet, here's the list. And this is two years before. Now, I didn't make the list, okay? Yeah, yeah. But I told them it's going to be Leonore two or three, probably three, mm -hmm. uh, Pachushka, Einhard and Laban, Mala five, and uh, what else? And uh, what did I say? Einhard and Laban, Mala five. Pictures and exhibition. 
I said, that's, that's preliminaries, okay? That's it. Why? Because it shows everything. Leonor shows everything. Shows, shows you, you know, a good command of the instrument with a good tone and a little bit of style. Pictures in an exhibition, same thing. I don't want to go through the whole thing of what they right. show, but it right. shows all aspects of your playing. I told these guys two years ahead of time. That when it came to the audition, they said, uh, you know, we all sat there, and, you know, okay, what are we going to have? And I said, you know, pick it. And they, I didn't, have, I didn't say anything, okay, because I didn't want to be biased. And it's exactly the tunes that I mentioned. So then I asked these guys afterwards. I said, so how was the audition? Was it run fairly? Oh yeah, it was run fairly. So um, yeah, and matter of fact, you told us two years ago what the, what the list was going to be, but, but they didn't make, a, they didn't even pass preliminary. So I said, what's the problem then? So it doesn't have anything to do with how long you know the music or, you know, because they want, you know, the other thing with audition, they want to make it fair. You're not supposed to listen to what the audition is and know what the audition list is. and It's all nonsense. Like, give them the audition list. Tell them exactly what you want to hear, you know, four weeks ahead of time. Because when people come in and play, you're going to be able to tell who is mature enough to handle it and who's not. You know, the top orchestras have started doing this. The recent L.A. Phil audition, the most recent one. They did this. They sent the list. And then I think almost a month before, they told you what was going to be on each round. They said, here's the big list. And then a month before, they said, the prelim is going to be this, second round this, final this. And I think that the reasoning is so logical. It's like, don't you want people to showcase their best? Exactly. Uh, You don't want to throw curveballs at somebody who otherwise might be a great hitter. You want to just see what they can do and this is like i love i love old way back when audition stories when they were like kind of on the fly i think my favorite was the thomas stevens for the la phil because he couldn't make the audition the day before and they said well you know we still wanted you to come in uh just come in and play for for you know a couple of us and he came in and he he brought his trumpets and they said, well, what, what do you want to play? And he said, well, I'll just play this little section from Brahms. And he played that little section. And they said, wow, that's terrific. Uh, just wait here. We're going to get the music director. I think it was Zubin. And then they brought Zubin. And they said, play what you played for Zubin. And he played it. And Zubin was like, great. Uh, I would love to hear some Beethoven. Do you know any Beethoven? I was like, yeah, I know this little part from Beethoven. And he played some. It's like, great. Do you know Strauss? Yeah, I'll play this from Strauss. And all that, what what strikes me about that, at the end, he got the job, obviously. But what strikes me is that they weren't trying to test him on specific shit. They were just, they were saying, I want to hear if you can play romantic music, uh, Beethoven and, you know, mm-hmm. Stravinsky. And I don't care what it is. You just show us, showcase your best mm-hmm. from as much as you know. And we can bring parts if you need them. But exactly. But they were trying to see the best elements of somebody instead of like gotcha moments and were trading so hard for the gotcha moment. And it's also so funny, the the auditions I've taken with the best orchestras, the lists are super clear, very short, yeah. uh, and very obvious. And the small orchestras have all these ridiculous lists that put on Brandenburg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and even, even I remember the, the one for your job uh, recently. The thing was absurd. Oh, that's a list. If you want to see a list, yeah. But that one was, it was like all Bruckner, all symphonies, every, <laughs> and it was like, well, what specifically do you want to hear all of it? It's like, okay, yeah. so now I, now I have to sit with the fucking Bruckner four that's like three hours and just <laughs> learn it in case you ask for it. This is ridiculous. And then at the end, people showed up, Mahler five, Petrushka. Yeah. You know, come on. 
I, and what I, are you? <laughs> I told some of those guys, I said, what kind of list is this, guys? I said, you guys can't even play this list. What are you putting it on there for? <laughs> Be practical. Oh, no, well, you know, somebody has to come and they have to know this stuff, you know, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, you know, you get somebody that knows how to play and they don't know the tune, they'll learn it. You know, it's a big deal. <laughs> you know, if you can play it, you know, okay, fine. <laughs> That's that's the other thing in Europe that they're doing better is they're giving very young hotshot players a chance to grow in the ensemble. They're like, okay, that guy can clearly play the shit out of everything we gave him. He's not good at this. I'm going to assume that somebody of that caliber in two years is going to be able to do that. Well, you know, there's that other aspect where somebody can play the hell out of everything. Okay, I think it, but... They, they're, they're, you know, the trumpet jocks. They're just like, right. I play trumpet and I'm going to play trumpet and without any concept of, you know, are you playing Beethoven or Mozart or Mahler or Bruckner or Stravinsky? You know, there's going to be a difference. There's different tonguing and different articulation for each one of those things. And if you have no concept of what to do with that, you always sound the same. I don't know if there's going to be hope for somebody like that. Then that's where the situation comes in where you have to, you know, show some basic flexibility of style. But that's going, that's going away, Russ. I mean, honestly. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's. Because you got every... a bunch of bonehead trumpet players. That's why we just want to play loud and high and that's it. And, you know, forget about musicality. It's all about the trumpet. Like when you're playing a Beethoven symphony, it's not about the trumpet. But that's, I also think that that's why they're so into the rotary trumpet shit now. It's like, I always thought the only reason you put Beethoven 5 on a list was to see if somebody could modulate really quickly on a piston trumpet. Because that's hard. I mean, like, getting that bouncy... Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's easy on rotary trumpet. But what happens now, like, everyone asks for rotary trumpet. So you have a trumpet jock, picks up a rotary trumpet, the trumpet does the job for him, and then we move on with our lives. It's... it's uh, We've lost track of why we do auditions and why we train to, to be musicians and why we want to be in the orchestra. It's, it's nuts. And like, it's, it's this mentality that what matters is the audition prep and reading tennis and the inner game or the inner, inner game of tennis. And, you know, what do you, what did you eat right before the audition and right after it's like, Jesus Christ, like what, what what is this like when when did you tell I'm your taking, student drugs before you play and yeah sleep. like when did you tell your student people... to consult the score where was that step that must have people, been a... <laughs> do people still do that take enderol before they play oh man i mean that the the enderol is one but the other one like i don't even know what the new drugs are now well beta blockers have become it's it, i feel like it's like lance armstrong like uh oh, now yeah. we even people like me that aren't nervous about taking an audition we have to take it because it's like it's not fair uh, it's no, not no. fair I, you know I, I, I there was a big thing and uh with that and i got some it was a i took it i i don't know i took i think i took five milligrams really small yeah and small they, dose yeah i took and i think i took 10 because the five wasn't working so i took 10 and when i got to this audition you know, my, my reaction to these drugs don't really go very well. Right. I get right. to the audition and I make a mistake. <laughs> I stop. I start laughing. I said, hey, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't even nervous. I was like, ah, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold I'm going to do it again. That's it. <laughs> so that, you know, that's what made me a little bit too relaxed. 
So I don't. So, but the other, you know, yeah, it's 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 always nice to play for somebody like in preparation yeah, for an audition because it puts you in um, a different atmosphere. That now you have somebody listening to you. Well, you can get in the same atmosphere by you know I used to sit down for hours, like five hours at a time, with a tape recorder in front of me. It was a, at the time it was a cassette with a good microphone. Uh, there you go. And uh, oh, the Zoom thing. Yeah. And, yeah, so I would sit there and record just one excerpt, pictures, and which last one minute. Mm -hmm. And then, then I would get the tape, put the headphones on, follow the music, and listen to it as if I was listening to a, an audition tape. And I would hear, all of a sudden, I, hear, I start hearing things about my playing. Well, what the heck? Well, no, no. You know, it was okay, but this was kind of funky. So if I was on a committee, I would listen to that saying, well, it's all right, but, you know, this is, I don't like this. Then I would do it again. I'd, I'd erase it and then I'd do it again. I listened to it again and it was better. If it was good, I'd keep it. I, you know, I keep doing that until I get an acceptable one. And when it was acceptable, I would keep it. And then I would have a nice file of all these good ones. And after about, you know, a week, I would listen to, I would, I would do this on a, maybe a daily basis or, you know, for three, four days in a row sometimes. But I would spend five hours and on maybe five excerpts just playing and then I never get really tired because I was most of the time listening and being critical about myself. So we don't depend on ourselves enough to be critical. I mean, I tell this to every student. I said, when you hear somebody play, can you tell what they're doing that's wrong? Do you like everything they're doing? And they, everybody says, yeah, no, I don't like what they're doing and I know what they're doing wrong. And I said, well, why don't you do that to yourself? Because if you can be critical about somebody else, Record yourself and then be critical, critical about yourself. But a lot of people, you know, sometimes you listen to yourself and, and uh, because you know it's yourself and your ego is a little bit, you know, inflated, then you're going to think you're really good. Well, that's, that's not good either. You have to think separate from that. You have to be on a committee and think of, uh, you know, listening to somebody that you actually don't like, <laughs> you know, and, and view it that way instead of thinking that you're good all the time. Because, you know, the ego is an important thing, but it also has to be under control. And I see a lot of people who have lots of big egos. That, that are not good because they, they because they think they 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 they're already playing really really well, um, but the, but they you know and evidently those are those are the people become more successful because they think they're really good and then they keep pushing it and they tell people they're really good and then it's like well it doesn't sound really good but you know I guess uh, who am I to to judge but anyway that's another subject the point is that you can teach yourself by recording yourself rather than going to somebody to have them tell you something that gets in the way words get in the way. Listening to yourself and hearing it and then just making it simply better. How can I make this better? Or maybe I, I'll articulate a little bit more here. Uh, I'll be careful in Petruska to not rush when I go, da -da -da, da -da -da, and, you know, be a little bit more definite in my rhythm. And I have a trick for that too. So, you know, it, that way you start to become more aware of your playing and more in control of your playing rather than having somebody tell you from the outside. And, and, when I was in Memphis, I, I, I was doing these auditions. It was New York Philharmonic, and I had a friend listen to me. I was doing everything right, everything right, and he, and he, didn't, know, he didn't know what to say. He just went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right then, I knew something was wrong. So I said, okay, that's when I got on my tape recorder, and I started listening. The next, and I played, and I said, okay, I got to fix that. Because I was losing, I didn't have the emotional impact. I didn't have the phrasing. I didn't have the, the flow of the music. I was doing everything correct. Everything was right. It's one of those things, yeah, it's right, it's good, but there's just something missing. 
So uh, when I got on the tape, I found out what it was. The next day, I called him up again. He came and listened. He goes, you sound like a different player. What the hell happened? Because I listened to myself and I fixed the things that I knew, you know, that I could only hear on tape. Because we're too involved in having a piece of metal on our lips. There's a lot going on. A lot of times you don't hear everything that, that you do. So you have to be separate from that. Sure, playing for somebody is a good thing, but sometimes they're going to tell you something and, and the words are going to translate differently in your head. That's why the best thing you can do when you're teaching somebody is not talk. <laughs> well, and I also think that there's a, there's a huge difference when you go play for somebody who you know very well, like right. because you've developed a kind of translation for what some a teacher means. And so that can be useful. But uh, yeah, I mean, the tape recorder thing is huge because, or, you know, whatever you use, or even phones now, it's just kind of like the microphone doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, it's it, it's so powerful. I mean, it also makes you nervous. I mean, it makes me nervous when I hit the, it, it's like it ups the ante for that, for that well, exactly. run through. Well, exactly. Because, because there, why do you need a person there? You have the microphone. It's even mm -hmm. more intimidating. Yeah. I remember yes, a student yes. saying, yeah, I had to record these four excerpts and, uh, you know, went to a recording studio. It took me six hours, you know, to record this, this demo tape so I could send it for this audition thing. And I went, it took you six hours to do four or five excerpts? Yeah. I said, did that tell you something? <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to... You're not going <laughs> to... Trying to save the guy some money. Like, if it's going to take you six hours to put the excerpts to send a tape and they accept your tape, you're going to have... Six minutes, not six hours, and it's a one-shot deal. So, so that was a learning experience for them as well. You know, I mean, it's so that's that's what it takes. But you know what? If it took you six hours to get it right, I bet you learned a hell of a lot there. I bet you learned a hell of a lot. Unless what you learned is that, I mean, this is where like you used to tell me this for preparing uh, to audition for festivals and shit that the people that got in were the ones that did the the prep that you were recording yourself every day for a month and then at the end of that you had like a version of every excerpt that you were at least remotely happy with but really what that does for you is you're like you said you're you're upping the ante every day because you're trying to get a good take if you do it all in one day it probably there'll be a good take but you're probably gonna you know, it, of course it took you six hours because you didn't do shit for the last month. I mean, it's, and, and uh, in the end, that's what I think it's also funny about, man, I, my friends spend a fortune going to auditions mm -hmm. and it gets me, it makes me so angry, especially the ones that go to orchestral schools. It makes me so angry at the end that they're like, oh man, I think, you know, it's a good thing. I, I only got past the second round because I hadn't prepared those excerpts in the final. It's like, dude, what are you, th what are you doing? Like, <laughs> Like, no shit you didn't get past the second round because, like, clearly you weren't thinking about any of this or, or being honest with yourself. And, and, and what do you think? You're going to have the best day of your life? I mean, it's... There was one student says, I, I'm, I'm taking an audition in, I don't know, Vancouver somewhere. So I said, oh, yeah, what is it? Yeah, so you, you're going to have a chance of winning this thing? Oh, no, I'm just going for the experience. What experience? To feel so, shitty? It's... Well, yeah, that's the other part of it too. Like uh, how much how much of a failure can you accept before it starts to, it starts to affect your psyche? You know, that you, you keep losing these auditions. It's, it wears on you. It wears on you. So, so I said, um, well, 
um, you know, you're going to get an experience on that. You know, you get your flight, you go over there, you get a hotel, and you, then you step in the room. It's a whole different experience. It's yeah. something that you can't really duplicate until you actually get there. So I said, so the flight's going to cost you like uh, four, 400 bucks, and you get the hotel, it's going to be like another maybe two, 300 bucks. Um, they're going to get a cab, it's going to be 50 bucks here and there. So that's four, five, six, seven, that's $700. Then you're going to eat something and probably go off the beers with some friends, $800, and another taxi back, and then 15 So, you, you know, you're going to spend about 900 bucks for this audition, right? Because, yeah, um, so I said that and you're going to play for less than 10 minutes, and you probably won't get any comments at all. And you're just going there for the experience. I said, so you're going to go for a six minute situation. I mean, if you add the whole thing up, the plane ride and the whole thing, it's more than six minutes. But, uh, but nevertheless, I said, I'll tell you, I'll make a deal with you. Okay. I will listen to you for one hour. I'll actually give you comments. And I'll only charge you half. I'll only charge you 450 bucks. <laughs> oh, what a bargain. Thank We're you. saving $450. <laughs> I'll listen to you for an hour. <laughs> they never took it up. I don't know why. I also like (laughs) to that point. I mean, I think it's perfectly fine to go take an audition for the experience if you've prepared for it. Like, I don't think that any like it's hard, especially now with all the competition that you're just going to walk in and win a job. So you do need the the legwork of what that means. But I've only ever learned from auditions that I've prepared heavily because then you know why you failed. It's like you walk out and you're like, I see now like what I need work on. Uh, I thought I had done well with this. I didn't. I cut corners here or there. Maybe picking this wasn't a good idea. Maybe doing that wasn't a good idea. But if you just go with that kind of open mentality, like, like, oh, I don't think I'm going to win. It's like then you have a perfect out. Every time, because you're like, well, I didn't get advanced, but you know, I didn't, I didn't really prepare for it. It's like, oh, well, good for you. You know, I mean, there was a thing, you know, when I was on the audition circuit, and you're always bumping with the same people, same yeah. people all the time, you know, and, uh, and it's like, it's like, hey, what are you doing out to the audition? You know, we're going to meet at so and so bar, you know, so, so all of a sudden your concentration is like, oh, we're going to meet at a restaurant, we're going to have fun, or, or there's a great museum here. It's like, no, I'm here. I'm here to take an audition and to win the damn thing. I don't want to go to a bar afterwards. Yeah. What are you doing tomorrow? Hopefully finals. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll meet at the bars, the Losers Club. It's like, and really, the people would call this the Losers Club. We're going to have a beer together. It's like, you know, what are you guys doing? Yeah. You're really like self-defeatist. It's like, you know, so I just like separated myself from that and, and got really involved with, with myself. And if somebody knocked on my door, I would open the door, look at him with this mean face. Ah, what do you, want? Ah, what? you know, <laughs> you know, one time I was at an audition, <laughs> the psychological part of it is just mind blowing. It's everybody's playing and you're in the finals. Okay. And I've been in the finals lots of times. And man, it's like you hear people playing, in the next room and then down the hall and they're, man, they just whacking it away. It's, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Listen to this guy play. This is fantastic. Oh, so you start to feel like crap. You start to go, oh my God, you know, I don't, this guy, this guy can play better than I can. You know, so, so, you know, you're afraid to warm up because you don't want to sound like shit. You know, these people, you know, so it's like, you feel so insecure. So I said, ah, hell with this crap, you know? So I just like tried to relax and I just started playing a, a tune that I like. <clears throat> and it's Lieutenant Kiji. So just to relax, I play that Lieutenant Kiji thing. And it goes in different keys. It's really twisted, you know, from Prokofiev. 
and all of a sudden everybody stops playing. <laughs> That's not on the list. Thinking that it's on the list, right? So it's like I just I just freaked everybody out. <laughs> and then it's, I told this to somebody, and and they did this at an audition, and the personal manager knocks on his door and he goes, "Oh, by the way, we just want to let you know that uh, this the, the Lieutenant Kiji is not on the list." <laughs> Or whatever piece they were playing, because oh, somebody so actually, because somebody actually asked, "Hey, is that on the list? Is it now? If you, this is the, the amazing thing is if you have to ask if this particular part of the piece that is what are you doing there is not on the list, and you're worried about it, maybe you shouldn't even have that job in the first place because you should be, you should know the whole piece, right? You know, and this is like. So, you know, for the personal major knocking on the door saying, um, this, this section of the piece is not on the list, so you don't have to worry about it, was really interesting to hear that from, from somebody who, who took an audition. That's I, I hilarious. That's kind of funny, you know? Yeah. That's really so good. So this is what you're saying is people have not really, they're just practicing the excerpts. They're really good at it, and they convince people that they're really good at it. But if you ask them to do something a little bit different, oh, my goodness, forget it. And that's where... You know, that's where you have the trial period of two weeks. You can usually sit next to somebody and notice right away, hopefully. But that's happened a lot, like, in the last... Since I've been in, in college, there's been a lot of... And maybe that's just me being more aware of it, but I remember a lot of the top orchestras finaling young people and not giving them the job after two weeks because it was a lot of excitement about this mega player that did this at the audition. And then it was like, oh, yeah, but he couldn't really get through the Beethoven symphonies. So, so why? If this guy's such a great player, why? Because they are only, I mean, and, and we know a lot of players like this that actually do have jobs. They, they, they play the music like they're recreating a record. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is how Mahler 5 sounds, and I know how it sounds. It's like, okay, but, but did you listen to the conductor if he's competent today? Or maybe the violist was feeling a certain way today. Did he react to that shit? Or right, right. Is, that comes right down to listening. Listening and knowing how to blend in with other people. That, if you want to know what the problem is, that's the problem. Is that people don't know how to listen, they don't know how to blend, and they have no idea on how to blend. They just play it one particular way because this is what my teacher told me to do, or this is the way this excerpt is supposed to do, and this is how I've practiced it for many, many years. Then there's no flexibility. So it's also and that, that orchestral, orchestral technique has infiltrated as well solo and chamber music. I mean, you don't know how many recitals I've gone to it that they play like the AWOL uh, quintets and it sounds like... It, it, you remember you, we used to joke about this with uh, the Gabrielli album? That it's like... Ah! And it's like, okay, but... Let's not mention any names, okay? I'm going to be well, in trouble. No, no, but, <laughs> but you, you know, like like those albums that are like, here, we're going to play Gabrielli and they play it like balls to the wall. And it's great. I'm glad that they did it, but that yeah. shouldn't be the standard... Well, uh, you know, you know. No, you're right. <laughs> and then they play the Hindemith and they can barely get through it. It's like, no shit. Have you heard how you're playing it? Like, ba It's like, okay. Okay. You're, you're playing with a piano here, not a symphony orchestra. Calm down. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, in defense of Gabrielli, there's, there's three ways to play Gabrielli. Gabrielli. <laughs> ignore everything about what you know about Gabrielli and just go for it. Okay. Um, Play it on modern instruments and and try and try to go with the stylistic uh, nuances that that are with that particular era of the music, or do it on natural instruments. Yeah, sure. The, the, the way it was intended, like with cornettos and, mm-hmm. and sackbuts, or you know whatever. 
Uh, well, you could do it with mixed instruments too, because they never, you know, they never knew who's going to show up for the gig. Yeah. So you know, so Gabrielli is acceptable in that in all, all aspects of things. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just to get <laughs> rocks off playing wild Gabrielli. It sounds good either way. I mean, I mean, when, when I was a kid and I heard it, I was shocked. But now that I've become calloused. I guess I can take more. But it, but it's also like the, I love that. I don't mind that album. But it's also like it's a little bit like Glenn Gould. Like yeah, I love Glenn Gould, but nobody should be going around thinking that this is correct, like the standard. You know what I mean? Either well, as well, a human being or as a piano player. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah, no, see, see, you know. But on the other hand, you know, same thing with the Pablo Casals. You can't really say that it's bad. No. Okay, it, 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 nobody else plays it like that, but it's like, wow, this is so weird, but it's it's okay. And you listen to Pablo Casals playing Bach cello suites. It's like, wow, that's that's I never heard that like that before. This, you know, it's okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. Him and Heifetz is the other one. It's like, you know, like, so yeah. so it's like, um, you know, it's funny. Um, again, in this class that I took, they would, the guy would drop the record and say, okay, what do you guys think of this? If you don't know who the, the guy is and you're listening to it, uh, it sounds like crap. And then you think, well, you know, that, that was Ron Paul, the greatest flute player in the world. That was Maurice Andre. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and you just, like, trash the hell out of him. You know, you have no idea who this person is, and you listen to it, and then you give your honest opinion, and then they say, well, it's Herseth or it's so-and-so. But you just trashed him. If you knew it was Heifetz or Herseth or, or anybody else, you know, Ron Paul or Maurice Andre, you would be prejudiced and you wouldn't say who not bad things. But if you're just being really straight honest on what you hear, you know, you might, it, it's, it's a whole different bag. It's like, wow, that, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't, that sounds kind of weird. That's a little bit twisted. That's, that's strange. Yet these people are, you know, Isaac Stern. It's like, you know, sure. The guy was a great player, but he listened to some, maybe some other recordings that are not so good. And you don't know it's Isaac Stern. You're going to go, oh, that, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> so you know but if you know you, you know you again it's a prejudice involved just like with the going back to the screen from our beginning of our conversation uh, you know uh, uh, julie landsman uh in the book called blink by malcolm gladwell yeah. yeah um in the last chapter where you mentioned abby conan they he interviewed uh, malcolm gladwell interviewed he's a fantastic writer by the way <laughs> and he interviewed julie landsman julie landsman said you know there's a prejudice behind the screen uh, uh, there's there's a prejudice with with auditions she goes she won the meta audition uh, um but if there wasn't a screen she goes i probably would have never won that and she you know she mentioned that at the final uh the finals she went for the high c at the end of the the the, um, the strauss and um and, at, and then the curtain came down and they, they decided to give her the job. And the first thing somebody said to her, because she was an extra with New York Philharmonic and with the Met as well. Somebody comes to me on the screen, looks at her and says, oh, it's you. I didn't realize you were so good. <laughs> Why? Because you're a sub. And that, just by the fact that you're a sub, puts you in a category of a substitute you're 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 separate you're not really part of the group you're different you're not as good as us that's what a sub is an extra okay and, and so there's already a prejudice involved with if you're a sub and the screen comes down they see you you know that's it the prejudice comes in there or if you know 
if if you play a con a d horn or whatever the hell that, that, that you know French horn players uh, play, uh, if you don't play the same horn that everybody else plays, oh, you forget it. You're not going to get the job. Or same thing with trumpets. So you have to have this trumpet or that trumpet. You know, there's a prejudice involved. Or if a guy comes in and he plays off to the side uh, of his lips. And she mentions that. If somebody has this incredibly weird-looking embouchure and you look at it, you go, oh, my God, it looks so strange. Bang. You just created a prejudice in yourself. Or if, if their physique is different or the, the, way, they, the way their shoes are or, the, you know, they, or their clothes, there's all, or the way you look or your hair, everything is a prejudice. So you have the screen up to stop all those things because everybody is prejudiced. Unless, I don't know. No, you're, there's always going to be some sort of slipping in prejudice. And that's where the thing with Blink comes in about the whole book, is that we all have a prejudice. We all have a preconceived idea of what something is. And we act upon that without really knowing. So yeah. somebody called, you know, and that's what's happening with police today. They, they, you know, they call up, there's a guy in the, in the backyard with a gun, and it's a guy with his cell phone, and he's talking. So the police go in there thinking the guy has Think a gun. He has a gun. Yeah. cell phone, but because his preconceived idea was the fact that the guy had a gun, because somebody told him that. And it's not true. It's a matter of making a decision within one five hundredth of a second and how you're going to react on that particular thing. And that's there's where that slight bit of prejudice comes in. So that's why we have a screen. They don't take a screen down. So Man, just, that's the dumbest that's the dumbest shit I've seen in recent times. That that article, the New York Times one, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Because yeah. it's like, that's the great equalizer. Like, like, it was worse before. Do people forget what it was like before? Where, like, some guy's student would end up being whoever, you know? And it's the whole business with the principal trumpets of the Boston Symphony was all bullshit, you know? <laughs> Back in the day, you know. Well, yeah, because I mean, because French people hate Italians. Had, it has nothing to do with anything else. Well, it was a French mafia. You had yeah. La Fosse, you had Magier, <laughs> and uh, La Fosse was related to you know Jerry Gogan was a nephew of La Fosse of Magier. So Andre Combe was related as well. Voisin was related to his father, who was yeah. there. <laughs> Everybody was related, and then Gatala comes in. Who the hell's this Italian guy? <laughs> So that, that, that put a big kinker in the thing. And then, and of course, he played much different than everybody else. And, and that caused a lot of, lot of headaches in there, too, because and then Leinsdorf was there. And I remember when all that happened, and all of a sudden he was playing first. He was playing principal, and was, I was playing third, like, in one day. That didn't create a very comfortable situation. But, you know, it's like, yeah, the Boston Symphony was, you know, kind of an orchestra, principal orchestra. that Nobody really auditioned for that job. <laughs> <laughs> But it was all well, like that, wrote, man. She, I mean, Gadala didn't audition for the job. Right? But it was all like that. I mean, I, it's so funny that Major ended up in Boston as a viola player for a year before being told that he should be first trumpet. It's like, the fuck are we? But it, it's like, we, glor <laughs> we glorify these institutions. But in recent, I mean, Bilger told me that, I didn't know this tidbit, but the first full-time orchestra in America was Philly in 67. I mean, that's like, so recently that's in 67 that was the first one that had a full week you know like the current weekly schedule oh really I didn't know uh, that. before that they were like there was the orchestra season and the opera season and then the circus would be in town and it was all the same players and uh you know Interesting, yeah. that was the other ed would always talk about uh Shilke always listing on his resume the circus as his main gig instead of the chicago symphony because when he was in 
in his prime, that was the real gig. And the Chicago Symphony was this kind of like pickup group. Yes. <laughs> I would have more history in that because he's really old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that. I'll keep that. <laughs> he's going to hate me for that one. That's oh, sure. Russ. Man, this was great. I really want to do this again. Um, All right. I'll let you know when this is done. I'll cut some stuff up together and, you know. It's really nice to see you again and to talk. Yeah, to it's been a too. while. It's yeah. Good you're doing this. This is great. Good for you, man. <laughs> hey, Russ. Listen, yeah. this was awesome. I want to do this again sometime. It was great. amazing seeing you, man. Good to see you, too. Yeah. Fun and fun. I'll, I'll have this ready, uh, you know, hopefully soon. So I'll let you know. No hurry. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you know when it's coming out. <laughs> All right. I try not to swear. I didn't swear too much. I think yeah, I, I swore more than you did. So I there you go. I didn't influence you on that. That's right. That's that's your fault. <laughs> of course, it's my fault. Everything's my fault. Yeah. yeah. It's my fault for having Dutois leave, too. Anyway. <laughs> All right, Russ, man. Thanks so much. All right. I Thanks. hope I'll see you soon, dude. Yeah, hopefully. See you yeah. later. All right. Bye, Russ. Bye, man.